Okay. I think yeah, I think the music plays in, and then uh, and then we say, "Hey, <laughs> that was some good music there, Yakov. What was that?" Yeah, that was uh, <laughs> that was Giza by uh, Gatekeeper. They are amazing. Based they're, on they're really what hmm? I was going to say. They're amazing based on that one YouTube clip I I listened to when you sent it to me a week ago. But uh, yeah, yeah, they're, they're they're a lot of fun. It just, it just sounds like. Um, you know, just music coming out of just like old John Carpenter movies or something. Because exactly. he composed all of his own music too, I think. Yeah, yeah. He was a he was he was the whole package. He was an auteur. Yeah. Uh too bad Clive Barker. I I don't think Clive Barker made the move the music for this this film. No, it was been... a guy named um Chris Young and actually I, I looked up um what other stuff he did. Uh, I looked up the FX guy and the um the effects guy and the music guy for this, and the music guy isn't like that big. Um, you know, he's he's just done a whole lot of uh, movie scores, a bunch of horror stuff. Um, the FX guy though is he worked on um, his name's Bob Keen. He worked on Highlander. He worked on um, Jedi. Uh, a bunch of other stuff too. Just he's he's really active. Surprisingly, guy's got a resume. Just- well, and I'm, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not super shocked because I got to say, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves. But uh, but the, the the practical effects in this film were great. I mean, they were yeah, no, excellent it's, it's, for a 1987 horror film on presumably a limited budget. Yeah, they had um they had a million dollars. I have no idea how much a million dollar is. A million dollars is whether or not it's in movies or not. So yeah, I but mean, I assume it, it's not that much. Yeah, it seems like a lot of money, but also not very much money. Uh, well, why don't we why don't we say hey, uh, welcome to uh, the first episode, the inaugural episode of uh, we have such films to show you a uh, podcast mini series, or will it be? Uh, in which uh, I, Josh, and uh, my cohort here, Yakov, uh, watch and discuss the entire Hellraiser movie franchise because they've made nine of them so far. Ten. Well, but the ten, made- the tenth isn't out though, right? The tenth one's Wait, no, like in production uh, hell. No, no, no. The tenth one is uh, Hellraiser Resurrection. That's the one where uh, they got a new guy playing Pinhead. No, but that, I thought that was Revelations. Oh, we, we'd better we'd better check this because I thought I thought there was the four films that were basically sort of canon-ish, and then four films they made to hold on to the option. They just You're made right, it. and then the ninth totally one right. was yeah. Because I got excited because I watched. The, 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 okay, this is this is how this whole thing here started. Is you posted on Facebook the other week uh, that you had just discovered that there were all these Hellraiser movies, and oh my god, and you were going to watch them all. And I showed up and went, oh my god, I love them because I I did the same thing like a year ago, and I was like, ah, oh, I'd always loved the the film and the franchise, but I thought the franchise was you know three movies, and it turns out there's all these more. So we said, let's do it, and. Yep. Uh, and yeah, so I was when you said there were ten in that Facebook post, you've already broken my heart here. Basically, is what I'm saying because yeah. I got so excited that they had actually managed to get a tenth one out while I wasn't looking. But it turns out it's actually been wrapped up in production hell for like five or six years now. And they've there was gonna it was gonna be a reboot, but then it wasn't. And now who knows? Last actual news I think was sometime in 2011. Oh wow, yeah, that's yeah, nothing's coming out of that. Although. Um I guess we should state the fact that it's based on a uh, novella Barker wrote called The Hellbound Heart, and he's in the middle, or maybe he might even be done writing the sequel to it. Oh, really? So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's uh, called the, uh, what is it called, The Crimson something? Hang on. Is this, do you, do you know if this is tied directly to or unrelated to the ongoing comics he's been writing uh, over the last couple of years, too? Uh, okay, it's called the Scarlet Gospels. I'm not sure. Are the comics canon? 
they decide uh, on that? That's my impression. My impression is that the current run of comics he's been doing uh, are essentially the canonical like next story. You know, after I guess films one and two, and maybe I don't know if three and four count. But yeah, it's like it's Pinhead and Kirsty, and it's like ten years later. And spoiler alert: the big early twist is that Kirsty makes a deal with Pinhead, where she becomes the new Pinhead, and he gets to go back to Earth. Um, and yeah. So I don't know. General logic of the movies. Yeah, that works. Yeah. <laughs> Deal making and, and such. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't know about him writing uh, an actual prose sequel. I wonder if they're tied together or if he's just doing two different things at once. Um, the, the Wikipedia entry doesn't actually mention it being linked to the comics at all. So um, yeah, I wouldn't be able to tell you whether or not it's linked to that. But apparently he's got like a lot of it done. He's just having trouble getting it published. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we'll just have to look into this. Um, well, let's let's talk let's talk briefly about uh, the movie itself, since probably the central conceit of this episode, uh, aside from us just geeking about Hellraiser in general, is we're talking about the original film, the original 1987 film directed and written by Clive Barker, uh, Hellraiser. Uh, that when it came out, as far as I know. Nobody, including very much Clive Barker, had any idea it was going to be a thing at all. Yeah, that's uh, I, I the, the the general quality of the sequels is uh, it, it shows you that he he thought that it was just going to be this one movie, more, yeah. more likely than not. Yeah, like I think I think he just like sold the options or the rights to it entirely because he was like, oh, whatever, I got to make a movie that was fun, and then uh, and then this entire franchise ended up being milked out of it. Uh, but yeah, so this is like this is classic classic eighties horror movie in in a variety of ways. Uh, and I don't remember. Oh, sorry, I, I just want to give you the working title of oh, this movie. Oh, do it, it, it's sadomasochists from beyond the grave. <laughs> that is the working title. <laughs> that is wow. That is bad. That is yeah. That's uh, it's a hell of a. It's like if title. Russ Meyer made this movie. Jesus. <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> I when when did you when did you first see Hellraiser? Uh you know what the first I the first time I saw the first Hellraiser movie was just like a couple of weeks ago. The prior to that, the only Hellraiser movie I'd ever seen was Hellraiser Four, which is Hellraiser Bloodlines. Oh, the one with Hellraiser in space. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's which is the, amazing. Uh, we'll get to that uh, eventually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, that was the first one I ever saw. How I mean, I must have been in my early teens. Um, yeah, yeah, I must have been in my early teens. And that was the only one I'd ever seen until now. When I was just I, I've been on a horror movie kick on Netflix, um, and I was just like, oh hey, Hellraiser. And then I finished watching, like oh two and three. And then I eventually just slowly realized that they're all on there. It's <laughs> yep. like, well, I have to watch them now. You know, something I want to say about that uh, is uh, it's a funny thing if you watch Hellraiser on Netflix. Uh, and you get to the end of the movie and it brings up some suggestions of other things you could watch. Uh, this may be somehow a reflection of my specific preferences, but uh, none of the movies it suggests are any of the other Hellraiser movies. There's like eight <laughs> other mil- films. It's like, hey, why don't you watch, uh, why don't you watch Evil Dead? Uh, why don't you watch a Carpenter film? Don't, uh, don't, don't even try. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I must have seen it in like high school sometime. I, I, I started reading Stephen King sometime in middle school and got sort of really into to horror at the time. And so I, I probably saw Hellraiser originally sometime in high school with my, my best friend Chris down the block. And 
and uh, it, it left. It left a good impression on me, but I haven't really been back to the original film in a number of years. Uh, and it was interesting coming back to it after – because when I discovered all the sequels, uh, I started at like number four. Because I, I remembered two somewhat and I remembered three somewhat. But I really didn't – I don't think I'd ever seen number four and I certainly hadn't seen any others. And so I haven't – I didn't actually rewatch the original Hellraiser at the time. So coming back to it was like coming back with all this investment in the tropes of the franchise and whatnot. And then I just sat down and watched this thing and almost none of it's there. It's such a, it's such a different film than kind of what you would expect from what all the sequels seem to take as lessons from it, that it's interesting how much of it's, it's like a Clive Barker short story or novella really versus the other films that are much more like, Hey, okay. So we got pinhead and we got some hell and we got saying spooky things while wearing leather and being all bloody. That's that's what these movies are about. So, I mean, not that there's none of that in this one, but, you know, there's so much. It's so slow to get to the big payoff if what you're waiting for is Pinhead. Yeah, I mean, the he, he shows up like for about what 30 seconds in the opening scene and then it's about maybe movies an hour and a half long. And I think it's about maybe 45 to 50 minutes before the Cenobites show up again. Yeah. And then you don't really get a big dialogue scene with them until, oh, like there's a couple of those in like the last half hour of of this 93 minute film. Yeah. So it's like if you're waiting for that specifically, it's like, why am I watching uh, a contemporary you know drama about an unhappy couple? You know, it's like this is just a movie about two married people who hate each other. And like, yeah, yeah, and it, it, the villain is is it's a, Pinhead's not the villain. He just sort of shows up, wanders around, and yells. Exactly. Uh, I, I guess, I mean, I, it may be unnecessary to say this, but uh, the whole theory, oh, listeners, is uh, that we are going to just talk like crazy about the movies. And if you don't want to be spoiled, uh, you are listening to the wrong podcast. Uh, if if you haven't watched Hellraiser, it's worth doing so uh, because, well, uh, gosh. I, I, yeah, I just want to add that if you, if you don't want to be spoiled, you're also watching the wrong series. <laughs> <laughs> It's not exactly uh yeah not not, yeah, not a lot of, not a lot of real twists in these films you kind of if you don't have a sense of what is going to happen uh I, I'd say there's a lack of subtlety in general to most of the films oh yeah absolutely there I mean I I sort of describe this I I'm I'm kind of particular about horror movies just because I I don't like um movies with like a lot of suspense like i like i can't watch like home invasion movies and stuff but i really really like hellraiser because most of the movie just revolves around setting you up to watch this like amazingly made scene of horror where um you know it's it's just like it's just like these set pieces where you just like everything eventually pushes you towards a set piece and then it's just like blood and gore and it's just amazing looking and yeah. that's what i really like about it. at least the first uh you know, two or three, and then the rest are, I, I like in a in a different way, like a stuffing your face full of uh, Doritos sort of way. Uh, yeah, exactly. Drinking too much bad beer because it's there sort of way. Uh, yeah, no, it's like I, 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 that's one of the things I definitely want to talk about in terms of the way the film was made. Like the first film in particular is a lot of it feels like there were very specific ideas that justified a bunch of pieces of the film that didn't necessarily work very well, but they had to be there to lead to the set pieces that were like, oh, yeah, no, this is awesome. we got this great footage. Let's 
build a movie around it, you know, which is a, uh, maybe, maybe an indication partly of, I don't know if Clive Barker had any directing experience uh, before this he didn't. film. He okay. did uh, two short films before this. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure that helped, but he, this was this, yeah, this was his absolute first feature film yeah. as far as I remember. Cause it has a lot of stuff in it that feels like, you know, that must've seemed like a really great idea when you were sitting around thinking, how the fuck do you direct a movie? You know, it's like, <laughs> Oh, maybe we'll do this. You know, it's like, which is not to knock it. I mean, I would be so incredibly proud to have made Hellraiser, but that's speaking as someone who's like, you know, got zero filmmaking experience. Uh, whereas someone who's willing to sit down and be really critical about watching a film, there are so many problems with it. Uh, but all in all, I think it comes off pretty well. It comes off like, you know, it's a, it's an ambitious little horror film and uh, it gets more right than it gets wrong. And even the stuff that it gets wrong is, you know, in an interesting way. So I don't want to, I don't want to like shit all over Barker here. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I 100% enjoy this movie. I like it's the, the, my appreciation of it is just utterly unironic, even with all of the problems, which like you said, the, the problems exist, but they sort of contribute to the entire feel of the movie. Um, just, I just want to give an example. None of the actors at all have any chemistry with each other. (laughs) Just not a trace. (laughs) And and it's it's funny because I mean you know the 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 main thing of the plot is just that that Julie and Larry have this just miserable miserable marriage, but there's all these hints that you know at some point the marriage was kind of nice and then you know then it just went to shit. But we see no, none of that. We don't absolutely not. Yeah, we 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 get flashbacks to. Uh, and we should talk about a brief outline for the people who haven't actually seen the the movie. Oh yet. yeah, yeah. Uh, but 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 yeah, there's the, we get flashbacks to a couple of key scenes in the past, but none of them are between the married couple who were seeing the tail end of their relationship. Uh, it's just taken as a given that at some point they must have liked each other. <laughs> uh, so so okay, let's let, let, let's 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 do a, a quick plot outline of of Hellraiser. Uh, uh, the movie okay. opens with a guy named Frank Frank Cotton. Who, um- yeah, Frank Cotton, who I was reading a horror wiki, and this is the best description of him I've ever heard. The globe-trotting pervert Frank Cotton. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, he's he's sitting across a table from an old Asian guy in presumably some Asian country, and uh, there's a box on the table. It's a very important box. It's a central prop to the, the film and to the, the franchise, uh, and he's buying the box with dirty wads of cash from this creepy old Asian guy who's like, what do you want? And filthy fingernails. Filthy fingernails. He's got inexplicably filthy fingernails. Apparently he was, you know, burying someone with his hands earlier. And so he he slaps down a wad of cash and the old guy's like, oh, let's take the box. And and he's like, and he leaves with it. And, he's, and the old guy's like, take the box. Uh, it's yours. It always was. So already we've got some sort of like, you know, you know, fate thing going on here where like, Frank didn't find the box. The box found Frank or something. Yeah, uh, I'm wondering if like Barker or just somebody else in the set just saw like the shining a little bit before and was like the ending. That's awesome. That part <laughs> where he's in the picture. Let's let's put that in here, but for no reason whatsoever. Yeah. Well, you know, and it made me think of Lord of the Rings. It made me think of, uh, and, and I'll get back to this because the way the movie ends ties into this. But like the idea of the box coming home uh, is kind of like the ring trying to make its way back to Mordor. Uh, and so Frank is Frank is basically a hobbit, is what I'm saying. Um, uh, Frank and the crazy skeletal dragon too. Spoiler alert! Uh, but it's like it's like the hobbit. It's like Lord of the Rings meets Gremlins because like you know old guy selling a thing and then taking it back, kind of. And 
I, I basically that's my that's my elevator pitch. Hellraiser is uh, Lord of the Rings meets Gremlins. Um, but yeah, you so know, f- now that you mentioned Gremlins, <laughs> I just have to say Gremlins was the first horror movie I had ever seen. I was six, five or six years old. It scared the shit out of me so bad I had trouble sleeping for like a week. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I no, saw bring up Gremlins. <laughs> I, I saw I saw Terminator in the theater when I was four. This was not super planned, but this was just sort of like improvised bad decision making by my mom because <laughs> she'd run into an old friend and they wanted to hang out, and she had me with. And I was like, "Yeah, I like movies." And she's like, "Okay," and and I don't think she really knew what Terminator was like, but yeah, so that left an early impression on me. And then I saw Aliens when I was like eight, and that did too. And Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three around the same time. So I, I kind of got an early traumatic dose of horror that sort of hooked me for life. Um, but yeah, so, so Frank gets this box, Frank Cotton, the world traveling, uh, grumpy pervert. Uh, and then he takes it back home to wherever this film is set, which we need to talk about that for a second. But, uh, he takes the box not home. Brooklyn. That is the yeah, only not- <laughs> hint we have. It's not in Brooklyn. <laughs> so he takes the box home to not Brooklyn. He goes up to the attic. He lights a nice square of candles around, which I thought was a nice touch. Like usually you see like a circle of candles or maybe a pentacle, uh, but he, he does a, he's kneeling in a little like four foot square of like 20 candles. And I thought that I was kind of cool looking and it tied in. Yeah. It matches the box. Yeah. He's holding a box, this little square box and, and, and he manages to open it up by fondling it. And, uh, and then hooks come out and tear into his flesh and he gets presumably Im- implicitly tortured for a couple of weeks by some freaky looking Cenobites, demons from, or, or are they demons? Demons to they're, some, they're angels to others. of the uh, upper reaches of sensation. Yeah. Was, was that the line? Something like, I've got it written down somewhere. But anyway, so yeah, they show up and then they torture him, presumably for a couple of weeks or something, before Pinhead, uh, the guy with pins in his head, hence the name, uh, we see him close up the box uh, by fondling it himself. And then the attic suddenly completely clean, and uh, and then the the Cotton family proper moves in, and that's uh, Larry, the dad, Julia, the uh, stepmom. Stepmom. Well, I mean, I guess in the relation to Kirsty, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then Kirsty Cotton, uh, Larry's daughter, and Julia's uh, stepdaughter, because Kirsty's actual mom is dead, but we never learn anything else about that. Um, so they, Julia and Larry move in and they're going to start over. They're going to make a go of it. They're going to try and make their apparently shitty marriage work uh, by and, moving And you know house. how well their plan is going to go? Because when they open the door to the, you know, the scary house, just the look on their face is, is just like somebody took a dump in the middle of the room and just left. Yeah. Like their faces just drop and it's like, okay, <laughs> I see where this is going. They're, they're unhappy as soon as they, they're unhappy before they open the door. Julie is giving Larry a hard time about opening the door and he's like, which yeah, key is it? Right. It's like, oh, you must, yeah. And so it, it's in, as far as like setting them up as an unhappy couple straining against a, a marriage that's failing, okay, they, they sort of set the tone there fairly well. But anyway, they move in and Frank was tortured horribly up in that attic and we established that uh, Julia is back on her home turf, wherever this is, somewhere in New England, maybe? The film... Yeah, that's... I'm going to assume. That, that, yeah, because everybody's American. The thing is, Julia's, Julia's clearly English. And, and Larry says she'll be back on her home turf. The film was shot on location in London, but I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be somewhere in America because nobody else is English. 
I'm just gonna assume she couldn't do an American accent, and they're just like, "Well, we already cast you, <laughs> she's, so she's just, perfect. Just otherwise, try your best." <laughs> I mean, she's she's severe, she's unlikable. According to the bad actor who played the mattress moving guy, she's gorgeous. So okay, well, uh, yeah, maybe. Oh, it's, the mattress moving guys. Oh, well, geez. remind me to get into the mattress yeah. moving guys. Also, I just want to get. So this is movie is from 1987, and just like Larry and Julia are dressed as the like ultimate 80s power couple. You know, he's got like the he's got like a power suit with like the big tie and she's she's got a pompadour. Um, which changes height throughout the film too. Yes, yes. The more the more she kills, the higher it gets. It's uh, uh and then um yes. It's like a hair <laughs> erection. Exactly. He's um yeah, so so she's got uh she's she's you know, she smokes, she's got the pompadour that that the pompadour turns into a mullet basically and like the shoulder pads. Oh yeah. They're just I mean they are the bold colors that match up with the the, the eyeshadow. Yeah, no, it's like and what does Larry do? Is he a lawyer? He says something. He's got a great job. He yeah, says. yeah, he, he makes lots of money. To sue somebody. So oh, either he's he? a lawyer or somebody who can it. afford a lawyer. Yeah. They got money. They got money for sure. Because like, there's this conversation at one point early in the film where uh, Larry's talking to his daughter Kirsty on the phone uh, over a bad connection. Uh, that whole phone thing. That's a. Uh, but anyway, he's a. Uh, uh, he's like, ah, you should, uh, you should, you should come move into the house with us. She's like, no, no, I got a room. And he's like, ah, oh, but why? And, like, and I, 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 I got a job. And he's like, why? And it's like, first of all, this is a conversation no parent has ever had with a kid. I got a job, Dad. Why would you do that? What are you thinking? But he's like, and you he's know, like, yeah, you, hey, you made you, the gesture. She's like, no, that's, it's a, that's exactly it. It's like he must like, just have right, a lot of cash. And he's like, yeah, no, seriously, come, just be a wastrel. Just come hang out in the house with me and your stepmom, who neither of us apparently like. It'll be great. So, uh, so yeah, so they move into the house. They get in the process of moving in the house. Uh, there's this mattress scene that we'll talk about in more detail. But the key thing is that he manages to cut his hand on a nail. And then he goes up to the attic where, where Julia is and where Frank got killed and horribly tortured and whatnot. Killed seems like too small of a word for what happened to Frank. Yeah, he, he, he partied with the Cenobites. It was a bad deal. So Larry goes up there with a bleeding hand and bleeds and, I mean, on the it's floor. Not just like, it's not just bleeding. I mean, he kind of, he cuts it open on a nail, which is, you know, hurts. But I mean, this thing is like gushing blood. He loses like a good liter <laughs> just like out of the top of his hand. Which, I mean, to, for, for the effects, it makes sense, but damn, that's a lot of blood. Yeah, a lot of blood, and it drips on the floor, and this somehow magically brings Frank back to life. So apparently when the Cenobites were done with him, they left some essence of Frank in the floorboards of this attic, and so he comes back to life as a horrible, uh, very, very under-built uh, human, like no skin, bare muscles, horrible, rotting terribleness, slimy. Uh, and then through the film, he talks Julia... Uh, who is his former one-time lover, despite her being his brother Larry's wife. Uh, I believe it's a literally a one-time lover, because I think they just screwed that one time, right? Yeah, I think, well, I think so. Maybe maybe it happened more than once, but uh, the film is not very clear about that for sure. Uh, so anyway, he, he convinces Julia to kill people because he needs more blood, more human flesh. We're never giving details on this but yeah julia that's... brings him victims he slowly becomes more and more a uh, human uh finally uh near the end of the film he kills larry he kills his brother and takes his skin because uh, up to that throughout the film he's never had any skin on him. he's been an obviously horrible monster but then he looks like larry uh and that's actually that becomes one of the hallmarks of the series is that i think 
I think in every single movie, somebody gets flayed. Probably. Like, somebody gets their skin taken off in, in every movie. You don't see it in this one, um, which I guess was just because that's out of the budget. Yeah, it must but, have been. Yeah, somebody like, loses their skin at, <laughs> in every one of these movies. So the rest of the outline of the film is basically Frank, Frank slowly comes back to being uh, human-looking, uh, eventually by stealing his brother's skin, Kirsty's dad's skin. Julia becomes his sort of willing helper in this by luring, like, sex luring dudes back to the house so that she can murder them so that Frank can consume them. And uh, eventually Kirsty has a run in with the Cenobites uh, who are angry that Frank got away. And she uses that to basically trade herself to get herself out of being hauled off to hell for a party with them. She trades knowledge of Frank being back alive and makes a deal with them to give Frank to them. And so the yeah, Cenobites quick thinking Frank. on her part. Yeah, it was actually, it was pre- under the circumstances. I feel like she performed reasonably well there. And so, yeah, the, the film ends with the Cenobites having killed Frank. Kirsty ends up sort of defeating the Cenobites. And, uh, and that's the whole shape of this, is this, like, family moves in. Frank comes back to life. Frank corrupts Julia. Frank kills Larry. Cenobites get, get Frank. Uh, but all this stuff happens in the, in the meantime. So that's just the, that's the, the sketch, the sketch for yeah. anybody who's coming into this blind so you have an idea of what we're talking about. And the Cenobites, we keep saying Cenobites... We talked about the uh, the uh, whole uh, yeah sadomasochistic uh, from beyond the grave uh, leather party dudes, uh, but yeah, these are freaky looking post humans standing around with variously mutilated flesh and faces and wearing uh, like costumes. Should we just go through the, the the four of them? Or maybe we should. Yeah, there's there's okay, these so four. There's, um, yeah, there, there's four. It starts with Pinhead. Um, he's got he's got the pins in his head. And he's also he's wearing a dress. I mean, I, I, I'm not even kidding. He's literally wearing like a leather bondage dress, and he's got really bloody nipples, but six of them. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I don't know if they're supposed to be six nipples or just six gashes, a couple of which must be on nipples, and maybe the yeah. others were just accessories. Uh, so that's um, yeah, so that, that, that's Pinhead. Then there's uh, I think they just call her the female. Yeah, female Cenobite. Yeah. And she's got, um, you know, all those like depictions of uh, Christ with like the, uh, what is it, the sacred heart where he's, his like chest is sort of open and you see the heart in there? Yeah. It's like that, but in her neck and just neck stuff instead of a heart. Yeah. It's, it's like her neck is, her, her, her mm-hmm. voice box is opened up, which, you know, it didn't occur to me until I was talking about this with my wife after watching it that like maybe this was supposed to be. Uh, sort of a, a vaguely vaginal reference to, which is sort of terrible when you stop and think that through. But uh, but anyway, so yeah, that's her. She's got sort of like her voice box being opened up is the the main uh, thing, along with the weird wires stuck in her face. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. It looks like a it's like some sort of a surgical thing. It kind of makes like this weird halo, I guess. Sort of, yeah, yeah. And, and then, then there's, there's yeah, the, the the chattering one. Yeah, yeah, the chatterer who's just just all the skin is peeled back, and all you see is just like you know, sort of like a mash of blood and skin, and then just like exposed teeth, and they chatter. Yeah, like his lips are his his lips are drawn back uh, horribly, so you can get a real clear view of his teeth, and he's just like is all he does. Yeah, that's all he does. And then there's my favorite Butterball, who he's just he's kind of fat. Uh, Butterball does nothing throughout this entire movie outside of get killed. <laughs> yep, he's got he he's fat and he wears sunglasses. And what's behind the sunglasses? At the very end of the film, it turns out that what's behind the sunglasses is eyes that are sewn shut. 
Uh, and yeah, he's just, uh, he's got no neck. So that, and that, those are the four Cenobites. And yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that in the credits, they're credited as lead Cenobite, chattering Cenobite, quote, butterball, unquote, Cenobite, and female Cenobite. And all of these like have like, 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 like the fact that Pinhead wasn't Pinhead is kind of funny, but like, yeah, there's... that's a fan name. Um, he, he didn't get the name Pinhead until, I mean, I don't think that was his official name in the movies until probably the, the third one, because that's definitely a fan name. In the book, I think he was called Priest or Lead Cenobite. And yeah, the Pinhead name is, uh, that, that, that's something they adapted from just everybody talking and writing about it. Yeah. Which kind of makes sense. I mean, he is like the icon. If you've never seen Hellraiser, you still, you would recognize Pinhead. Like he's sort of like the Mickey Mouse of this horror franchise. You know, it's like, it's an image. Yeah, he's up there, there with Freddy and Jason and yeah. Chucky and. Is that, is that all I can name? Freddy, Jason, and Chucky? Uh, there's Mike Myers. The Mike Myers, uh, yes. Yeah, those are kind of the big ones. Pumpkinhead. Um, yeah, that really didn't get anywhere. Uh, so, yes, okay, this movie, this amazing, weird, complicated, flawed, wonderful moving. Uh, there were so many. I We were talking the other day about just notes and I have like literally like 3,400 words of offhand notes about like little bits from this, the, the movie and whatnot. And I didn't have any particular structure here for talking about this other than what we've been doing already, which is just going, Oh my God. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, mine are in roughly chronological order, but then I went back and I made more notes over them. So yeah, I sort of yeah, grouped a few, uh... few things together that I'll probably just keep coming back to. And this might be the structure for ongoing ones so we can touch on the same things. But, uh, uh, one thing I wanted to talk about is uh, I, I mentioned this earlier, but the the way that there are scenes in this movie that feel like they were made out of shots that were really great that Clive Barker wanted to be in the movie, and then he figured out that it had to be a movie and not just like a freeform montage. Yes, uh, yes. Um, basically, just about any shot involving Kirsty that isn't in the house. <laughs> Um, you know, when she's like passing under like the, 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 like uh, just a, she's just walking somewhere from like point A to point B. There's no reason for the shot to exist. And she's walking under like these giant pylons or something. I don't know what they were. And the shot is really pretty, but I'm just like, does this mean something? What I don't understand why I'm, I'm seeing this shot. Yeah. It's and like, then again, um, after the party where she's uh, with – what's the boyfriend's name? Do you remember the boyfriend's uh, name? It's something like Steve, but I've just been calling him knockoff John Cusack in my head. So he's just <laughs> – he's Cusack. That's John Cusack is in this film now. Uh, Steve. Okay, well, I think it was Steve. Uh, let's just but, call him uh, Cusack. Yeah. So when her and Cusack are um, – they just they they descend down the set of stairs outside. I think he's walking her home from a party, and there's just like it, there's this amazing like zoom out shot of them just standing among all these like brick walls. Yeah, well, I think they were like going down into like a subway station or something because they st- that's where they stop and kiss. Is yeah, that I, think, yeah, I think that might be what they were doing. But it, either way, there was no reason for that scene to exist except for the fact that it was really pretty. Yeah, and, and, and so they set it up and, and they do this. They, they kiss, and there's this slow pan out, and it feels like it should be a setup for something. Like, like the not. fact that we're doing this, like, pan out on a kiss with subway noises, it's not, it's neither successfully romantic nor successfully, you know, spooky. It's just sort of, like, awkward. And it's like, that, that's a, that was a really nice, like, you know, zoom out you did. But why did you do that? Why was that there? You know, there's little things like that. I feel like there's, uh, let, let's, let's talk about near the end, there's a scene where, uh, 
we've established earlier in the film through a couple of, of scenes, like the opening sort of sequence where Frank gets tortured and the flashback scene where he's describing this to Julia too. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, we see things like hooks coming out and grabbing into his flesh, and 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 there's a pillar. And that's a wonderful shot, by the way. It's the the way they shot it is, it's like these hooks. I would say that they're about maybe a finger's length, maybe half a finger, and you know the the hook itself takes up basically the entire screen, and the rest of it is just you know special effects flesh, and you really just see it go in there and tear it up. Yeah, and it looks, it looks a little fake, but it also looks really fucking cool. Yeah, I, I would say it's it's not the most convincing effect, but it totally sells the idea of like hooks ripping into flesh. Uh, which uh, so 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 we set these things up where there's the idea of there's a spinning column like a eight by eight. Oh, the wooden, rotisserie of death. Yeah, yeah, that's got like nails and stuff in it and hooks in it and and all sorts of gore attached to it that presumably is pieces of Frank um, after he's been you know steadily torn apart for a couple of weeks uh, by the Cenobites. Uh, so we see these things early on and we see these things as like things that are bad and happen. And we see hooks flying out and going into Frank, like right away, like hooks fly out, grab his flesh. So late in the movie, uh, Frank having killed Larry and stolen his skin, uh, Kirsty manages to lead the Cenobites to him essentially back in that attic room one more time. And, uh, and he, yeah, no, go ahead. So, so, so. Light starts coming through the rafters or or through the 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 lath and plaster of the walls, which is a big recurring gimmick, like spooky yeah. light in the dark room coming through the walls. Uh, and the Cenobites start showing up. We see a shot of the Chatterer. We see a shot of Pinhead, I think. And we see hooks come flying out of the darkness again. And then nothing happens. Frank's still just sort of standing there because the hooks were apparently just flying out to be like, hey, just fucking with you. Just, just, uh, just, just stretching the old legs because then he's still standing. There's like, oh, this is a tricky situation instead of, you know, being torn apart by hooks, which is, as we've established, what happens when the hooks come out. So it's, it's such a weird, like, you had this shot. You had these shots. You wanted to bring it back in thematically. And I'm talking to Clive here and, and, and chastising him, apparently. You had these shots, and you put them in just to establish that, oh, shit's getting bad. But it doesn't work because, oh, shit's getting bad, and then it didn't actually happen because Frank's still just sort of being sassy and like, well, no, uh, I, I don't want to go back to being tortured in hell. Uh, and he doesn't actually get hooked by a hook in the scene until like two minutes later when he goes to grab Kirsty when she's yeah, running away. Yeah, and then then the twelfth hook flies out of nowhere, and that one actually grabs him. So what were these hooks doing? What was the what was the pillar doing? How did the gore get back on the pillar when he hasn't been torn apart? Yeah, like it just it felt Maybe they just didn't clean it off from last time. <laughs> it's like oh shit, we got to be in the attic. <laughs> I was totally gonna. I swear to God, I was gonna watch the pillar. Uh, yeah, so it's like a lot of things like that feel like. It just sort of got put together from the pieces because uh, it, it, that probably would have been a less uh, exciting scene if like the Cenobites had just shown up and like, hey, Frank, and he'd be like, oh, buddy. So, you know, the hooks set the tone, but they don't make sense. Uh, things like that in the film. Uh, there was um, that that actually just – oh, I'm, you, go ahead. You can finish I was just going to say it, 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 it's one of the things that makes the film a little distracting for me. And I really, really – to be fair, I really noticed that the second time I sat down and watched it uh, – uh, a couple days ago. I didn't notice that on the first rewatch in a while. It had sort of bugged me, but I hadn't put it together what was wrong. So, I mean, I guess in a sense, if you're riding the ride, it's like, oh, fuck. You know, you don't care that there's absolutely no logic to how the scene is Yeah, this is movie edited. is really good if you don't pay terribly close attention to it like we did. Yeah. <laughs> Lesson learned. Yeah. There was, um, actually, speaking of just like, just 
just anticlimactic shots. Um, when Julia brings like the, I, th- I think it's like the first of her just like endless parade of just wiener dudes. Um, she just picks up like the, the most wienery guys, and I mean because Larry is also like that. But anyway, so they're up in the uh, the, the killing room, which is, she takes them up there, and then she hits them with a hammer because that is really just the the cleanest, easiest way to dispatch. <laughs> it's just like beating him repeatedly with a claw hammer. Um, which eventually gets its own hook. Like, she commits so many murders, like, there's a dedicated hook for that hammer in the attic. But anyway, so she brings this guy up there to seduce him. And so he's just, like, kissing her. And he's just, like, he backs up, drops his pants. Then we get a shot of Frank, like, lurking in the shadows. And apparently Frank is just staring directly at this dude's ass. (laughs) You know, just in his, like, blue underpants, like, little blue underpants. So anyway, he drops his pants, and then he approaches back to julia and just starts making out with her again just like oh yeah i I was just a little you know a little hot up here it's so human i just want to take my pants off and then back to exactly what we were doing yep and uh yeah yeah. there there was there was yeah there was a real lack of uh sexual uh energy in most of the (laughs) well and to be fair to julia i don't think she was really into the having sex like like she seemed to she seemed to warm up by the third time we saw it happen to the process of pretending to want to take a guy home for sex and then murdering him with a hammer. But uh, yeah, you never got the sense that she was actually into the uh, sexy sex stuff. Like the only person she showed any sexual interest in basically the entire film was Frank, both in flashbacks when he seduces her. We should, we should explain this. He seduces her. He shows up like the day before her wedding to Larry. She's never met him before. He knocks on the she's door. Heard of, I mean, it, it's implied that she's heard of him and that she knows he's just like a wastrel, basically. Yeah, he's a scoundrel. He's, she probably yeah. is aware from Larry. And he her. shows up in his like, just in the rain in his leather jacket. Yeah, and, and, uh, and he's like, I, I, I'm Frank. Brother Frank. Can I come in? And, and she's bro- like, yeah, oh, yeah, himself as Brother Frank. Oh, Brother Frank. Yeah, okay, oh, I thought right. you were Frank from down the block. Yeah. Sorry. And, 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 and then, in um, no time flat, the man manages to seduce her there's no seduction scene they just go directly from like just frank making innuendo to frank having basically seduced her and then and cutting off her bra with his switchblade his trademark switchblade oh yes trademark Uh, you know what this actually reminded me of did you ever see uh the immortals it came out like a couple years ago it was just like shitty like the action movie based on greek myth no i don't think it did there's a scene in it um, where the, the, the protagonist has to, like, you know, he has to rouse, like, his troops to, to fight the bad guys or whatever. So he's got them all united. You know, they're all banging on their shields. He's like, all right, and he's about to give this rousing speech. It cuts to the bad guys invading the castle or the, the, the keep or whatever, and then it cuts back to him. And he's like, and we must win, and then everybody claps. They just they, they, they there was no there was no rousing speech. They I, I guess they couldn't get anybody to write it, so they just you know cut it out. It's like no, just 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 assume they're roused. Assume it was great. It's it's the same with a seduction scene. It's like assume it was sexy. You know, it it must have been right because they're they're having sex now. So right, yeah, yeah it's like they take it as a given. Yeah, no, yeah, and they. They they screw on her wedding dress because symbolism. Yes, it, it, it's great. They they have a shot of the wedding dress on the bed, and then <laughs> later there's a shot of her grasping the wedding dress in the throes of passion. And and uh, as but, far as I mean, I wouldn't say it was the throes of passion. The way she lays down in the bed, it looks like she's going in for an MRI. <laughs> like she's just like just she just like lays down on the bed like there's no room, and that she's got to be very still. Oh no, I totally agree. This is a cutaway shot later in that flashback montage. We just get a close up of her hand grabbing the. 
dress oh, that's in a right. way that you yeah. can't even tell it is the dress unless you're like, oh, that must be the dress just because it looks a little satiny. Uh, yeah, no, and, and so yeah, Frank just like like zero to sixty seduces her or coerces her or whatever, and that for that scene she's into it. And later, after Frank gets his skin back or gets Larry's skin, uh, oh, yeah. they have sex again, and that looks very passionate. And those are like the only times in the entire film that Julia seems actually interested in sex. So like Frank, I guess was basically it for her but uh but was the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time and that led to you know terribleness but uh but at one point she's sort of having sex with larry or or or, well not having sex but uh making out uh grinding rounding rounding second base i partly i think just to maybe distract him but partly maybe out of like oh hey maybe i can give this a go and then frank sneaks up behind them and 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 so larry's on top of of Julia and so Julia can see Frank, but Larry has no idea because Wait, Larry's no, no, role on, in the uh, film. Is before we get into this, they um the the way the way this happens is that they're sitting on the couch and they're watching what the fuck are they watching? Boxing. Boxing. And like Larry's watching, he's really into it. Like he's making like little punches in the air, and then Frank's making noise upstairs, and then Julia basically has to convince Larry to not go up there. Um, and she fails and they go up there, but Frank is, you know, hides in the shadows or something yes. and they go back into the bedroom because she's just, I, I guess she, I don't know if she's turned on by, by Frank. I don't know. I don't know if she's just trying to get Larry to go to sleep. Um, but you know, they go into the room and you, there's like a split second shot of just right when they enter their bedroom of just like Frank walking across the shot. But unless you know, that's what's happening. It looks like an extra just walked across the shot. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, you'd think there'd be like a dun-dun yeah. music that, you know, they can't hear it, but we can so that we know that's Frank. But no, it's just like, it, it, it's just, you know, just some dude's torso just walking across the shot. And the only way Frank and, could have gotten down there is if, like, when he realized maybe they were going to come check it out and heard, you know, uh, Julia trying to convince Larry not to go into the attic room, somehow managed to get down to their bedroom ahead of time. Like, he was like, oh, well, I'd, I'd better go to their bedroom where they never And then do he anything. didn't hide and waited until they opened the door and walked in to run. And he's like, oh, shit, I better... Yeah, I forgot. I'm hiding. Yeah, that, it's like, what? But anyway, so yeah, then he, he, he sneaks up on the bed and... and uh, and Julia can see this. And so I, as far as I can tell, Larry's thinking, hey, it's been the first time in a while. Maybe, maybe we can make this work, you know. And, uh, and then Frank's coming up. And, and so Julia gets frightened. And Frank pops out his switch bag. And sw- his, her, his switch bag. Yes, it's a bag that you press a button on. And then it turns into a knife. Uh, <laughs> so he pulls out a switch bag. That'll blade. be in Hellraiser 10. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> time to beg. Um, he pulls out the knife. Uh, Julie starts freaking out. And as far as Larry can tell, Julie is just like suddenly having a violently unhappy reaction to them, you know, getting it on. Uh, but, but doesn't Larry, actually do anything about the fact. Yeah, yeah. He's, he eventually just sort of stops. He's like, I don't even know what's going on with you. But in the meantime, what Frank does to like really seal the deal, he doesn't pull out the switchblade to stab oh, no, wait, Larry. Wait, the one, one really good part is that Julia's like totally not into it. Like, you know, she's just sort of like staring at the ceiling like, uh, when is it going to be? And then there's like a <laughs> flash of lightning and she sees a bunch of like red nail polish knocked over into like some tissue paper on the table that it resembles blood. And then suddenly you see like, you know, arousal come over her. And then there's an, I think it's, there's another flash of lightning and there's this creepy, creepy painting of a child. It looks like, like a Mark Ryden painting of a child with these like giant dark eyes on the wall. And it illuminates that. And it's just like, wait, is that arousing her? too 
See, you know, and I had, uh, I had not thought of the idea that maybe the spilled uh, nail polish was supposed to represent like the notion of blood and, and sort of get her motor running. But maybe that is what was going on. I, I didn't understand. I was like, wait, so Frank drank some fingernail <laughs> polish. What's I don't, why are we seeing this? I don't, I don't understand what the polish is about, but maybe that's what it is. It's like that ties in certainly to some of the other visuals in the movie with Barker using sort of blood and blood like metaphors. Um, but yeah, I, I love the fact that what Frank ends up doing to totally seal the deal on freaking, uh, Julia out and and ruining any chance of someone else successfully having sex with her uh, is he pulls out a rat which we've established earlier in the film that there's rats up in the attic and he uses his switchblade to just like cut a slice off this dead rat and then he just leaves and, like he's peeling a vegetable yeah he's like oh he's just like, let's like, he's see like the skin off a cucumber or something it's like oh this rat's got way too much skin on it yeah it's the see weirdest ya. fucking thing uh but I, I gotta. I mean, I guess I gotta give Barker credit. Like, at least he does weird things that don't make sense. Like, you know, there's I mean, a lot of things in this film creepy. that are like, yeah, it's like I did not see that coming. I did not expect the uh, zombie to cut a slice off a rat uh, to ruin your sex life. So, you know, that was kind of cool. Uh, <laughs> how did we even get <laughs> onto that? <laughs> uh, um, oh, you know what? That actually uh, that that reminds me. Just I think it was like Julia's first. Like, so so Frank. Um, Frank convinces Julia to bring these dudes home and kill. I mean, she, I don't think he specifically tells her how to get people to him, but he's just like, bring me people so I could eat them or something. We're never quite sure how he uses them to, to, to gain power. It's something having to do with their ear because like the closest time you see it is just like, like the, her last kill, like he's going for the dude's ear right before she shuts the door. Well, it's like his, anyway, so yeah, we'll come mm-hmm. back to that. Come on. Go uh, on. So she, you know, she picks up like, you know, just some random, just like, wienery dude at, at at a at a hotel bar and she brings him home and they're like making out the staircase and then she's just like you know she's sort of running hot and cold like she is in the in, in the entire movie and then um and you're clearly supposed to realize that she's she's being hesitant about whether she should really you know kill this guy to help frank like she's she's hesitating and so she stops making out the guy and 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 he just like you know he flips out he's just like what you didn't change your mind did you and then suddenly she's like yeah i'm gonna kill this dude (laughs) takes him up there and just beats him with a hammer yep it's it's like it 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 was almost that guy was almost sort of seeming charming prior to that in a let's go home and have what is presumably infidelity sex uh after getting drunk at a bar uh, but yeah, he's almost like, you know, he's like, he's, he, he doesn't seem like a bad guy. He just seems like someone who is willing to, you know, uh, be picked up at a bar and say, oh, it's the, I've had a lot to drink, but Hey, it'll be fun. And, and then, yeah, when she, they're kissing a little bit and Julia's like stiffening up and not obviously getting into it, then he's like, don't you fucking change your mind now. Or, although I don't think he was, uh, English, let alone, uh, uh, no, Cockney. Was. was he, One maybe, maybe was he was. Maybe I th- maybe it was that guy then. Anyway, yeah, the, yeah. I, I liked I liked the sort of arc of some of that. It was always a little bit awkward, and Julia managed to flash the happiest she ever looked in this film. Uh, was when she was turning on the smile while murder baiting someone uh, back to the house. Uh, yeah, you know, it's like that was like the biggest smile, and, and it was probably a fake smile, but still, it was like you know, it was a more she did a more convincing job of just turning on a bit of a smile for a stranger she was going to take home and murder for her dead back to life lover who was her brother-in-law 
than she ever did when she was like trying to navigate some basic social niceties around her husband and their friends. Like she excused herself oh, from the party, party one point and she's like, oh, they, you know, I've got to go to bed, you know. And and she exchanged the weirdest, long, awkward yeah. smile <laughs> with Larry yes. on the way out that like everybody at the table is like, what the fuck is going on? You know, but yeah, that, the guy at the airport I, I think I have smile. a note that that's where I have in my notes the nobody has any chemistry in this movie note is when they exchange that glance. Yeah. And there's there's other awkward, weird interactions like that, too, where you would think any normal people, it's not even just the lack of chemistry. It's the lack of, like, believable interaction. At one point, Julia is coming down the stairs and Kirsty sees Julia and Julia is being really weird and just sort of staring and saying nothing. And Kirstie's like, are you all right? And Julia continues to sort of stare and say nothing. And Kirstie's response is like, I guess I'll go back downstairs. Okay. Rather than, are you having a stroke? You know, it's like, (laughs) obviously she's not all right. She's like, she is at best, you know, experiencing shock for some reason. You know, it's like, they don't act like humans a lot of the time. It's sort of a weird thing. Uh, Speaking of not acting like humans, there's all of this shit that Larry says that sounds like he's quoting something or it's an aphorism, but it really isn't. And when you like when they're they're talking about Frank, so they so Frank was squatting in the house, and so he made the place a mess because he's Frank. Um, and so he was like living on a mattress and there, and she's, and Julia comes, she's like, well, who was living here? Squatters. And then Larry picks up like this little pornographic statuette of a couple fucking. He's like, no, it's Frank. And I'm like, oh, that must be his calling card. Wherever he goes, <laughs> he just leaves these little pornographic statuettes. And that's how, you know, Frank was there. Seriously. Um, anyway, so, so when they were talking about Frank, Larry says, he's not the type to kick cash out of bed. <laughs> do, do you have any idea what that means? I don't. No, I, 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 it didn't mean anything to me particularly. I don't know if it's specifically an aphorism or just the notion that, uh, yeah, Larry feels like Frank would sleep with someone who is paying the bills. And is, that, is that what it's supposed to be? I guess. I, That's what I took from it, but uh, but yeah. So, so, so there's this party scene where, the, where you know all of their friends are over, and um, so Larry, who's just – What's the opposite of charming? But, but still with the trying. Like David Brent. Like he, he's almost like David Brent levels of just awful where first he makes a joke about Mengele and then he uh, threatens to sue somebody's ass. He's just like he was going to sue that doctor who patched up his hand. So that, that's, that's, that's his humor right there. Yeah. And then Julie wants to leave. He's like, you can't leave. It's the night of the paper hat. What the fuck does what, that The night, I, the I, night I, of the paper hat? I, I meant to Google that just to see. But uh, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, it, it, and it felt. Yeah, it feels yeah. so. It feels so like mattered. Like this is very intentionally a line. You know, literally but maybe, the first thing that comes up for that line is the script to Hellraiser. See, that's no good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> may, okay, I, I'm going to posit a theory here. Uh, Clive Barker was actually attempting to uh, make this film as an homage to Robert Altman. And so nothing in the script was in the script. He just had sketches of the scenes and said, okay, go. And Larry just took it to the limit. He's a, a, a major English improv. is not his first language. <laughs> yes, he's actually, <laughs> he's actually a, a Portuguese actor. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of lines in the film that feel like why why is this being said? Is there supposed to be a context? Uh, and I wanted to ask you because you just you just read the novella recently. 
Not all of it. Not all of it. Okay, so I, I read a, I read a good chunk of it. I, I I'll uh, probably I'll probably read it through next week because I'm curious about because I feel like some of the stuff feels like it might be something that would totally make sense if it came from a novella and was adapted to the screenplay by a guy who's really a prose writer and not a screenwriter. Because uh, right. some of that would sort of make sense. Like maybe it just didn't make the transition because it was a little note in the story that was totally coherent, but not here. But I yeah I don't know if that's the case at all or if this is just uh, what. Clive Barker came up with, you know, from whole cloth when he sat down to do the film treatment. Yeah, the um, just just the last thing by Larry I want to highlight is just like after Julie leaves this party, like one of the guests asks him, just referring to the wound on his hand, he's like, "Does it hurt?" And Frank's just like, <laughs> "Only when I drink." Larry, what? Oh yeah, Larry. yeah, yeah, yeah. Only yeah. When I drink. It's yeah, like, and, and and it's treated as like, and, and then everybody laughs, and it's like it's yeah. oh, it's, it's it's a witticism, you know, and uh, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's like it's. It's almost like it, there would be nothing wrong with these lines if these were actually just random shit someone was saying at an actual party. But if you're going to bother to film it, so <laughs> so maybe that's the Altman thing. Maybe it's like even if it wasn't improvised, maybe it's going for the Altman s sort of like this is just a peek into you know an actual naturalistic social event rather than a dramatic exchange sort of thing. But that might be just giving it too much credit. I don't know. Let's let's get Clive on the phone sometime and ask him pointed questions about all this. Um, Let's see stuff from the movie. There was there was a lot of recurring recurring little tropes in the movie, uh, like gimmicks that kept coming back. Uh, the door to the attic room seemed to close on its own an awful lot. Yeah, and sometimes it was clearly creepily closing on its own because there was no one who could have closed it. And sometimes it's not totally clear. Like Julia comes in a couple times and the door closes in a way that might have been her just giving a little toss behind her back, but it happened off camera. So like. Uh, probably eight times in the film, the attic door closes. Four of them are unambiguously a weird situation. And then four of them, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's supposed to be creepy or not, but it's totally a thing. At the end of the film, there's also the front door of the house closes itself, uh, oh, yeah. which is, the, I think, the only other door we see close itself. And at that point, the whole house has gone to crazy horror hell land. So uh, I guess it makes sense. But uh but yeah, the door thing. The door thing kept happening. The this crying baby thing happened two or three times. Uh, yeah, that's right. The uh, they actually, I guess, when we get to the second movie, they 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 th- there's a payoff for that. Yeah, in the yeah. second movie. I kind of I thought that was the and, and the hospital scene. I when I got to the hospital scene, watching it for the first time in forever uh, the other day. Uh, I had forgotten that, that was even in the first movie. I thought that yeah, was like the second movie starts in a in a hospital and takes yeah. place mostly in a hospital. Yeah, so I was like, I was really thrown for a minute there. So maybe yeah, it's like it ends up paying off in the second film, like you say, is maybe the key thing yeah. there. But but in the first film, there's no justification whatsoever for the crying baby. There's just a crying baby during a dream that Kirsty has, and then there's a crying baby when she's crawling when she's walking through the creepy hell corridor that opens up in her hospital room. That's right. Uh, and then there's no baby in the film and there's no specific allusion to a baby and there's no uh, clear setup for the conception of a baby or a hell baby or anything. So it's like, wow. Right. Um, there's the heartbeat. The heartbeat, the heartbeat. slow heartbeat shows up a few times. It's always a Frank thing. And it's not, it's like a super slow heartbeat, like some sort of thump, thump. Thump thump. That's their inconsistency for like a few heartbeats, maybe in the few scenes it shows up, and it's always when Frank's sort of lurking around. And I feel like it's tying back to the early shot we see when Frank first starts to regenerate under yeah, the floorboards. Yeah, his heart. Yeah, we see his his heart sort of start to expand. Uh, but uh, again, it's never explained, and it's never made clear whether this is supposed to be 
a diegetic element that like Julia, for example, would hear, or if we're just hearing a heartbeat to say, oh, by the way, Frank's got a slow beaten heart. It's, it's like, it's, it's there, but it's not clear why it's there. Speak, actually, speaking of whether something is, you know, diegetic or not, should we, should we explain what that means for, oh, sure. Uh, for people who aren't so, uh, being annoying like us. Yeah. <laughs> so specifically regarding audio diegetic means that the audio is taking place in the scene like if somebody's playing a piano the other characters can hear it like the audio is actually being generated by something happening in the scene non-diegetic is just it's just soundtrack sounds yeah so you know the, the characters can't hear the background music they can't hear like some of the spooky effects but some they can which is the issue here so here's the thing i cannot for the life of me figure out if in the first movie the puzzle box is also a music box I don't think so. I didn't get that impression at all. Because it makes music box noises several times. See, I hadn't particularly noticed that. So maybe maybe I just wasn't looking for it and was just accepting that as part of whatever. Because I, I, I sort of took it as just making sort of like mechanical, like it's, it's, it's a clockwork noise is sort of what I had assumed. But I didn't notice the music box angle. That, that bears reviewing. Yeah, there, there's a couple of times when like somebody's messing with the box and there's like, there's like music box tinkling. And I, I just could not figure out whether or not. And I think at one point the music box tinkling starts, and there's a reaction shot to it. But I, I didn't make a note about it. Now I can't. I can't even remember what that was. It was towards the end in the hospital scene. I think we'll have to go back for that sometime. Yeah. yeah, I totally didn't get that at all. Uh, we mentioned the gore earlier, and how oh, basically yeah. the gore practical effects are all pretty good. Like they, they they vary from like you know some of them are a little bit shaky, but some of them are mm-hmm. pretty great. You know, and it's like. But the other major effect component of this film is hand-drawn animation for what would now be very much, you know, CGI effects. And it's, oh, you're talking about like the, 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 the electric stuff coming yeah, out of the box? Yeah, sparks coming off the box or tracing around the lines on the box, uh, outlines of the Cenobites appearing or disappearing as sort of shaky hand-drawn animation of their silhouettes, uh, little things like that. And it's so, it dates the film in a way that like, not even the outfits in the film date it quite as much in terms of movie making, even though obviously some of the outfits are very eighties, but like, this is like distinctly, this is in the era before decent CGI because the hand drawn animation stuff is kind of charming in its own right, but mm-hmm. it's also like fakety fake, fake, fake. Like there's, there's no thinking, Oh wow, that that's a very spooky, magical thing that happened. You're like, wow, someone, someone drew that on the, on the film, <laughs> the frames. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, and, it, it's just so jarring, and and yet the the practical effects the I mean like I I think the the, the there's there's two really really just like all out like this is where the budget went practical effects scenes <laughs> the first one was um, just Frank's resurrection which oh wow great they, scene. Um, I mean I I think it takes place over um, like I, I don't know what the hell the time span's supposed to be because the blood gets sucked into the uh, so so Larry's blood drips on the uh, on the floorboards gets sucked in and I have no idea how they did that effect honest to god because it looks really cool no idea how they did it the I th- blood I th- just gets sucked into the I think the they did a lot of reverse shots on stuff I think they filmed a lot of stuff in reverse the film and I think what they did with that probably was just put some 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 little gouts under like nails and boards and then they just pumped out blood slowly and then they filmed it around backwards uh, cuz they do that for a bunch of the other yeah. uh, goopy effects too but that's my yeah, best bet. Yeah, most of the, the, the resurrection scene is, 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 is done in reverse. But it looks amazing. What happens is like these two pools of like ooze develop and then just bones shoot out of it, like two bones. 
just shoot out of it, and then you know the, the flesh starts growing, and eventually the pool solidifies, and basically like just zombie Frank, who at this point is just like bones and like a couple of organs, like pulls himself out of the floorboards, and it's 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 gorgeous. It is just absolutely gorgeous practical effects. Well, yeah, it's, it's like it's, I would say it's on par with with the thing. Yeah, no, like it's, that scene specifically. It's a really quality shot. It's a really quality sort of like practical effects horror shot that like is what. That was the best effects you were going to get in the 80s was the stuff that you could figure out a way to shoot right like that. And it's, it's, it's kind of a shame. I feel like that the hand animation is in there on some of the other effects because it's so distractingly unslick compared to the best of the, uh, the monster effects. And I wanted to say, yeah, I, I, thought, I thought that scene with Frank assembling himself, you know, bones and muscles at a time out of the goo and pulling his, his brain stem attaching to his spine – you know, with the exposed brain coming out of the goo, you know, all this stuff was really great. And it reminded me, you know, in a way it felt like an homage to every werewolf transformation scene ever made. You know, it feels like sort of like the, the goopier taking it to the next level riff on that same, cause that's such a classic horror sequence, you know, to do like the guy who turns into the werewolf for the first time. And you get all these like various montage of close up shots of his fingernails growing and his hair yeah. growing out and his spine getting funky and whatnot. So this was like, this was like a werewolf, but from scratch instead of like man to wolf, but it had the, the very same sort of feel to me. Like this is the big, this is the big shot. This is the thing that sells you on the, on you know this is what everything else in the movie is like sort of like just sort of an excuse for yeah um, and i mean it it did it it sold me on the movie have did you you've read watchmen right yeah yeah it's like have a, you seen the movie uh i did I, did, I, I so i i didn't see the movie so in watchmen there's um when dr manhattan he you know when, when dr manhattan the person just goes into like the the nuclear chamber or whatever it splits his atoms and then he has to slowly like reconfigure his body in much the same way where he just has to slowly grow himself back yeah did did it what, what did it look like in the movie was it anywhere near this cool i don't I think this is what it should have looked like if I, it didn't it probably looked very good in the movie but it speaks to something that i can't really remember the movie the movie was a very sort of uh very sort of like faithful adaptation of the visual chronology of the of the Watchmen graphic novel. Uh so I, I I am sure that that looked great and it probably looked reminiscent of what the graphic novel would have looked like if the graphic novel was illustrated with modern CGI, but uh I don't remember being particularly taken by that scene or anything. Um it certainly I I I don't think obviously it's not quite as memorable to me as this one was. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I have a feeling it was a lot more sterile mostly. Is the yeah. Thing. Um, you got a little bit yeah, of that that's old the thing about practical effects is that, you know, you, 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 that they're not smoothed over. Like you see all of like the little bumps and ridges and you know that what you're looking at is a thing. And I just, that's what I love about practical effects as opposed to just CGI. And I mean, CGI can look great, but like there's, I I can't see them being able to pull off like a scene like Frank's just uh, you know return with, with with CGI and having it look nearly as cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a different feel. And also, you know, one of the things I like about practical effects is like I'm not an effects guy at all. You know, I've never like wanted to like you know make you know monster makeup or whatever. But I I when I'm watching a practical effect, I can sort of like look at it and treat it like a little bit of a puzzle that I could in theory solve if that's what I wanted to do with my time. It's like, oh, so maybe they did this, maybe they did that. I, I could imagine getting some cow brain and, or, 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 or whatever, like, you know, putting a thing mm-hmm. together. It's really neat to be able to engage with it as a, I know what I'm seeing is fake, but I know it's fakery made from real stuff. Whereas with CGI, it's a little bit more detached. Like, you know, if you're into 
CGI production, I'm sure it's very engaging, but I'm never going to be like, oh, well, I see how they did the, you know, uh, whatever, the uh, layering well, and, well, and so on. They moved the mouse around and then they typed <laughs> and then they moved the round mouse around and then they typed some more and bam, yeah, CGI. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's certainly in no sense artless, but it's, it's just a different sort of yeah. level of uh, visceral uh, engagement, I think. Uh, let's see, what else? Um, I, I'm so torn between trying to talk about interesting little structural parts of the movie and just complaining about things in the movie that didn't make sense. <laughs> like, like, like Julia, after her first murder, she's got blood all over her, uh, and she, she gets out of her bloody clothes, uh, but we never find out what happens to the clothes. And we don't need to know what happens to the clothes, but like, it's a little bit at odds that that never even is an issue, whereas at one point she... like in that same general area, she hears Larry coming home and she's like the body of the guy that just got murdered by Frank. Uh, she's like, oh, what do I do about this? And so she takes it out of the attic, the attic that nobody goes into except for her, the attic that no one has no, no, a reason to go she, to. First she takes off like her, like she's, she's had, she's still wearing like her seducing a guy outfit, which is just like this very just eighties, kind of like a knee length pencil skirt, like a, a white like collared blouse shirt thing and then like a power jacket with shoulders and she takes off that like really nice jacket and throws it on top of the body which is still mostly dressed it's you know yeah it's like there's I, no tarps in this house she's, she's just got to use her like really nice jacket i think maybe, maybe the there. idea was that she didn't want to touch it so she could pick it up with the jacket but it didn't really sell it on film so she takes that across the hall into some storage room that they appear to be using for anything at all, at least for storing stuff. So the room that it seems more likely someone would even go into, and then she stashes it behind like a pile of stuff. We don't see that. We just intuit that because no one pokes their head in there and says, oh my gosh, where's this body come from? Until late in the film where Kirsty ends up hiding in that room briefly in a totally pointless scene. She hides yeah. in this room, and I think she hides in this room specifically to set up her accidentally leaning against that body weeks later and it leans over and it's a horrible mask of death and rot and maggots come pouring out of its mouth and land on her cleavage and uh yep. and then she manages to not scream and i feel like julia only moved the body so that it would be in that room so that kirsty later in the film could bump into it and get maggots on her well to be fair it's a really good hiding place because in order to find that body you have to go into the closet <laughs> and jostle it and just be in there for it to fall out. It's yeah. It's a good hiding place. It, no, it, it, yeah, it was just, it was so, I don't know. But, there okay. Was a, I, I, the, oh, I want to say, the, uh, the, <laughs> there was a related scene to that where somebody opens a closet door and like a Jesus statue yes, falls out of it. Yes, like it's the same scene. It's the same season. Kirstie's going into the hide. Uh, oh, or the, the the later scene where she finds the body. She goes into that room and she opens a closet to go in there. I think she's going to hide in there. And then, yeah, like a half-scaled Jesus pops out. And, and it's like, yeah, Jesus Christ, you know, so <laughs> there, there's, there's all this iconography around the house. That's a weird thing. That's right. so, the, um, on the mantle in the living room, do you know what those, I, I know for a fact they're not called idols, but do you know what those like little Christian statues, like Catholics have them a lot. Like I live in a pretty Catholic neighborhood uh, and I see I, them a lot. Icons maybe? I've, I, I was raised sort of really liberal Catholic, so I don't know most of the details of like orthodoxy stuff. But uh, Well, the one that's, the one that's in, the, um, in the living room, like on the mantle is, is Judith with a holofernous head. Yeah. <laughs> and with some Christmas lights I mean, yeah, around that, it. 
Yeah, with Christmas lights around it. Well, and this is, a, this is okay. This is an interesting thing that comes into it thematically. Is you have all this stuff in the house that presumably was put there by Frank because he was squatting there and the house was otherwise empty. So maybe Frank had all this. And Frank, Frank, you know, invokes God and Jesus several times in the film. You know, his final line in the film before he gets torn apart by hooks again is, you know, Jesus wept. You know, that and, was and really, was it? That was ad lib. The original line was "fuck you." <laughs> <sighs> That's great. Well, that, that 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 may undercut somewhat my theory here, but I'm trying to say that like Frank presumably has all these icons around, and also you know mentions God and Jesus a lot. You know, he says, "You know, please God help me." You know, and really emphasizes God a little bit, even though he's talking to Julia. Uh, so I feel like there's this thing where like there's this undercurrent of even though he's a globe-trotting pervert jerk who likes to seduce his brother's you know fiance, he's also maybe actually kind of religious and maybe it's sort of like a a thing where like hell is only most meaningful to those who actually have a sense of belief or something. I don't know if they were going there with the character because as with most things in the I, film, who knows? But but I kind of wonder I, about that. There was so much focus on that. You know, there was so much. I think and um, the book might back me up because i think i remember this from the book but i think that's all of their mother stuff oh maybe it's Kirsty's dead moms no 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 because uh, the, oh, the, oh, the place oh, frank belonged and to frank and larry's mother oh okay who died and that's why frank was living there and then he left and then larry got it so i think that's that's Kirsty's grandmother's stuff but i'm not sure oh interesting well as as with most things in the film uh, we have no idea because the film didn't bother to actually uh, set it up uh, particularly clearly, but there it, it's so conspicuous and stuff. And and at one point, Kirsty's shell shocked after she has her crazy encounter with Frank, and she runs off with the the box, and she's wandering around dazed in the city, and she totally shoulder checks a couple of nuns who are only there for that two seconds to be randomly <laughs> shoulder checked. It's like it's like yes, okay, Catholicism, religion, Christianity. We we know these things are, but why? You know, what are they doing in the that was, so it was weird. I, I felt I felt I felt like there was a lack of clear tying in of what was going on there. It was just there, but didn't really make a whole lot of sense other than the idea that okay, these guys are sort of like demons. But then they kind of disclaim any attachment to traditional tropes of religiousness. The the, the Cenobites do. They're not like yes, we're demons from hell. They're actually very explicit about how they're like they're explorers of the further reaches of sensation. Demons to some, Thanks, angels to others. So like they're kind of saying like I feel like their argument is that you know no we're actually kind of unaffiliated we uh we're from another dimension where sensation is you know taken to the limit rather than well if you're bad you see us if you're good you see angels you know it's like it's very it doesn't seem to engage at a straightforward level with like conventional uh Christian mythology or whatever so it's like it's the intent is so I don't know what to make of it is what I'm saying and I I look forward to seeing there's a line in the, the, the second or third movie where somebody's talking to Pinhead and they're just like, what in God's name are you doing? And his reply is, Does, do I look like somebody who cares what God thinks? <laughs> maybe they're like, maybe maybe they're separatists. Maybe it's not so much that they aren't tied into Christian theology as they are sort of like a splinter group. They're like, you know what? Uh, conventional hell's boring. Conventional heaven, I don't get along. Let's Let's just go have a dimension of pain, you know? Uh, but I feel like, yeah, I feel like the, the later films touch on some of this more in a way that this one really doesn't at all, which is weird to come back to 
uh, because I'm so used to the idea of this whole franchise as having all of these, you know, these tropes and catchphrases and central ideas that the film just doesn't touch on. Like Le Marchand, the, the box, the puzzle box at the center of all this is, you know, well known as Le Marchand's box, uh, you know, later in the franchise and the mythology of, of Hellraiser. But that's the name never comes up in the film. Like in Hellraiser, it's just the box. It's a box. It's a puzzle box, period. Yeah, and I think in Hellraiser 2, it's the lament configuration. Yeah, which is a specific thing you can do. Like there's all these configurations a box can go into, of which we only see two in this film. Uh, one of there's, which, there's the regular one. That, yeah, uh, yeah the, the, the pop-up and move over and move mm-hmm. down and then pop up in half and the thing you see three or four times in the film. And then right at the end of the film, Kirsty accidentally bumps it into some other weird... Uh, triangle yeah, like, half twist, like a pyramid triangle thing. Yeah. Uh, and does what? What is that? What did? What did that do? Did that summon the guess, engineer? Is that what that thing is called? The, I think that's the, yeah. I think the that, upside I think down scorpion puppet dude. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it seems like it did. With. Yeah. The, the climactic action scene of the movie is, is <laughs> was just terrible. Like yeah. Steely gazed slap fight. It goes on for like 30 seconds and it's like, yeah, it's completely I, I, another one of those scenes that feels like it was put together from disparate shots that were not planned out well. So they just used what coverage they had and tried to turn it into something that made sense. Uh, there was a terrible. Okay. So I, I talked a little bit earlier about the idea that some of these things feel like maybe they are the work of someone who's used to writing, you know, prose stories and not so much screenwriting. And another one of the ones that really made me think of that, that really just pulled me out of the movie when it happened, because it was so stilted. There's this conversation between uh, Frank, when he's about midway back to being a fully formed human, he's eaten a couple of guys that Julie has brought home uh, and they're having a conversation. Then he says in a tone that sounds almost like a whiny complaint, he says, I'm hurting and and as the viewer, you're like, wait, you're just going to whine now? And Julius sort of looks up and like, what? Uh, but then he clarifies that, you know, his nerves are coming back. You know, he can feel things. Uh, he's actually happy that he's hurting. So he means hurting as in I'm hurting because my nerves are functioning. It's like, oh, okay, that's makes a little more sense, even though it felt kind of stilted. And then there's a little bit more patter between them. And then she goes to leave and he grabs a wrist, which is a very frank sort of thing to do. Uh, but he grabs her wrist and she looks at him and says, you're hurting. And she here means uh, you're hurting me because you grabbed my wrist. You're an asshole. Uh, but it felt like it's, it's such a little, a uh, clever little pairing of lines that like, I think on paper in the right sort of way, it would look very clever. It's like, oh, I see you're both sort of twisting language a little bit in a way that you then echo by switching around the pronouns. But in practice in the film, it was like, why are you talking like this? Why? What's that's what comes out of your mouth? You both sound like idiots. You sound like you're no, reading that was dialogue. His line. You're reading the wrong line. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was it was odd. So you know, it was like that was another thing that I wondered if it was something from the novella that like maybe was a good little line there. But uh, uh, gosh, the one thing that I really remember from the novella that was really cool is that um, when Julia first you know just sees Frank like slowly coming together up there you know she's like sickened and horrified and then she realizes the fact that he he's actually really weak and then she's just like and then she's just nauseous because of the smell and I, I thought that was pretty cool because Frank is outside of being able to get Julia to do shit he's he's basically useless even at the end like when he's chasing Kirsty around the house she punches him and he drops and then she punches <laughs> him again and then he drops again and then she goes to hide it's like why don't you just hit him like a few more times he's he's clearly like not not at full strength yeah, or whatever you could there's take a chair in there you can hit him with it 
It was yeah, it, yeah. I I did like the point that the thing where yeah, she she got punched him at one point when he was still pretty soggy and you know came away with a handful of insides on her her fist. That was a that was a nice little gross for everybody yeah. moment. Uh, and yet he can smoke with no problems. <laughs> like he's you see him like he he eventually like assembles like a leisure suit. I don't know if she just like Julia just like starts bringing him clothes or something. But eventually he's like in a leisure suit. But because he's not fully put together, it's covered in blood. But every time like he touches her. Like, you know, it doesn't leave any blood. He's smoking a cigarette. The cigarette's, you know, like, fine. And, like, I've tried to, you know, have a cigarette after taking, like, right after taking a shower. That shit gets wet. Yeah, he's like, he's, can- he's surprisingly not sodden for a guy who is basically exposed, exposed bleeding flesh. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think at one point he says, um, I, this this must be like the, I, if, if it is innuendo, I mean, wow. But, like, he's just like, uh, he tells Julia, it's like, you know, we need to kill more people to put flesh in my bones. We both want that, don't we? And it turns out they both do, because that's the first thing they do once it gets put back together, is they just go uh, fucking Run. Larry's skin in the bedroom. So, uh, yeah. There's a, oh, there's other stilted dialogue at one point with murder number three, Julie's leading the, the Patsy upstairs and he stops and out of nowhere just says, I, uh, I get lonely sometimes. And Julia says, everybody does after a, a brief pause. And it's like, eh, it's a whatever. Um, She's lost any patience with any of this. Yeah, but that guy, I think he was, I think his dialogue was totally looped because it sounds off and it doesn't feel like it quite syncs up. Right. So whoever they hired to walk up the stairs and say, I, uh, I get lonely sometimes just didn't deliver the goods. Like that was his one of two lines in the movie. And they're like, Oh, we got to use something else. No, like maybe they just mic'd it bad, but still I kind of feel bad for that guy. If that was like his big role and then they used someone else's voice, maybe they used his voice and he was just bad at looping too. So, yeah, I mean, I did, uh, he was pretty far away from her because, I mean, the scene was pretty closely shot, but he was, like, down the stairs and she was up the stairs and it was shot from pretty far. So this is probably, like, a mic thing. Yeah. Oh, here's here's something. Um, you know uh, Aphex Twins' uh, Come to Daddy, right? Uh, the, which the, which is one it, is that? Wait, is it called Come to Daddy? That's the one with, like, the, the, the stop-motion video that's uh, with, like, that giant, like, monster thing screaming at that woman. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, there's okay. like the industrial zone where all the kids with like Richard D. James' face, and then like that monster comes <laughs> out of the TV. Yeah. So the thing is, most of, like the 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 lyrics, I guess the sample, the voice samples of that song is just somebody screaming, uh, "Come to daddy, and I will eat your soul." And the lines "Come to daddy" um, appear, appears in this movie like three times, and yeah. then it wasn't "I can, I will eat your soul." They say, "We'll tear your soul apart." We'll tear your soul apart. So I'm wondering if yeah, I'm just wondering if that's uh, that's a coincidence or not. I don't know. Uh, I, 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 I Richard uh, D. James seems to be a a a, a bit of a, a scamp in a whole lot of ways, and seems full of references. So so I don't know. I, I'll swallow your soul is a line from uh, Evil Dead, or was it Evil Dead Two? Which will tear your soul apart. Evil Dead think Two of, yesterday. Uh, so maybe it's a maybe it's a mix of of those things. I don't remember if there was "Come to Daddy" in that, but uh, but yeah, Frank says "Come to Daddy" a bunch of times, and that's another one of those things that feels like a setup that didn't really feel like it paid off. He says "Come to Daddy" at one point earlier in the film to Kirsty when she knows he's a horrible monster, and then later when he's stolen her dad's skin and she hasn't somehow figured out that that's what's going yeah, on. She, she's totally not not noticing like the giant gaping bloody wounds at his ears. Yeah, like yeah, it's like most of Larry's skin is on him. And then he's like, and he's like, oh, come to daddy. And he's like, oh, wait a second. That's not, 
that's not my dad. That's my freaky uncle Frank who said, I'm uncle Frank come to daddy. Cause he's not very, you know, good at talking, but I uh, understand how family works very well. <laughs> that's the in problem. Both the figurative was, and literal sense. He, he's misunderstood. You know, it's, it's not his fault. Uh, yeah, that was another sort of like, eh, really? That's, that's how you decided to do that. But, uh, but yeah, that felt like almost it was trying to be a catchphrase. Kirsty says, uh, go to hell a couple times. And the first time she shouts it at, uh, the Cenobites, uh, the female Cenobites, like, you know, we can't not alone. Uh, but then later she shells it, yells it again and doesn't get in any trouble with sassy Cenobites. So I don't know, but it felt like a very knowing, like go to hell. I'm not just saying go to hell in a euphemistic sense. I'm saying literally go back to hell, the place where you are from, unless that's not where you're from. Cause the theology is unclear. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. But uh oh gosh, there's there's so much stuff. I feel like uh we we could talk there's dangerously couple, like, long. Yeah, um there's there's there was these two like arty scenes, one of which was uh, was it Kirsty's dream or Julia's dream where where she just dreams of like this room and like all of these like down feathers floating everywhere yeah, it's and like a dream. body covered it's Kirsty's dream. And yeah, I have I mean it looked really cool but I have no, like no idea how it's supposed to reflect on any of the rest of the movie. I have yeah. just no, not a clue. And that's one of the places where there's a baby crying and and, yeah. and and the the finality of the dream is that the the figure under the bloody sheet sits up and it's Larry looking really terrible which I guess presages Larry being killed and having his skin stolen by his brother. But uh but yeah it's like it still didn't really make any sense. Uh and I and lo- I love about that scene like and then she wakes up with a start from the dream. But what we see is we cut from the dream and Larry jumping up and being a reanimated corpse or whatever to her boyfriend, John Cusack, sitting up with a shock. So it's almost like in it's a his dream. Bed. Yeah. Oh, yes. They've gone back to, I don't know, his place and they're sleeping in his childhood. In the same room, beds. but in separate beds. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what was going on there. Were they – I'm not entirely convinced they weren't related. Maybe this was a, a, a very early, you know – treatment of arrested development or something uh but yeah and, and so he wakes up with a start and then she's still tossing and turning and then he wakes her up and she wakes up with a start so it's like it's one of those and things then, that, uh, yeah go ahead it, it's, it's like one of those things was like is this is this clever or is this supposed to be clever or it felt like a little bit of misdirection that's kind of on the one hand hey that's neat that the wrong person woke up from the dream but on the other hand it's like to no point we know nothing about this guy we get nothing from uh yeah there was um and just right at the end of that scene, you know, she calls Larry like in the middle of the night, who picks up and he's just like, oh, it was just a bad dream, honey. And he's coming back upstairs to Julia, and she was just like, what was that? And Frank and uh, Larry's just like, oh, she just had a bad dream. And Julia's answer is who? <laughs> <laughs> It's like, oh, you know, just any of the number of women that call here at 3 a.m. with their bad dreams. Yeah. Maybe he's a psychologist. Maybe that's his job. Maybe. Maybe. That could be it. I don't buy it, though. It seems like he'd be terrible at it. He seems really easily frustrated, for one thing. Like, he'd be sitting in a session, and someone would say, like, you know, I feel like I I don't understand how to, you know, deal with this feeling I'm having. And he'd, he'd just, like, frown and be like, shit. You know, like he does seven times in the movie. So... Kirsty's got that too when she just like I think the first time that she's in the house and she's trying to turn the water on and something's not wrong she gets really pissed off and then she hits and then there's water everywhere because she like knocks the uh, the faucet off the fountain off the I mean she knocks the uh, the the head off the faucet in the water spring it's like you you didn't have to get that mad I, at it I, I mean, did she I, I thought it sort of spontaneously oh, was burst like the pipes were being bad it sort of burst on her like she didn't like hit it she I mean she was frustrated but 
but then I feel like it burst and it burst at the same time that Julie was upstairs tearing a photo of Frank and one of the many women photos Frank had photos of himself with tearing the photo to tear the woman off of it and then that burst and it felt like such a deliberate cross cut like maybe Frank was like oh man I'm so excited that you're tearing a lady out of a picture of me that I'm going to metaphorically just burst out of this faucet or something like yeah, that that sounds like it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but what are you going to do with it? Because the the film is full of those weird edits. So speaking of uh, cross cutting, we should probably get do, do the uh, the mattress thing. Oh God, the mattress thing. The for, sent, well, for, the greatest yeah, the scene in the film. Yeah, it it really is. But in the first thing is just, so there's these uh, there's these two movers. They're trying to get a mattress into the house, and actually, they're na- in the book. They're named. I don't remember what one of their names is, but the other guy is named Mad Bob. <laughs> like you know, just Mad Bob, and Larry just refers to him as MB. <laughs> so may, I don't even know if they're movers or they're friends, but I I just I have this wonderful idea that because they show up again in the next movie to just remove a to move some shit out of somewhere else that there's a body. And I just I just want to see a series just about these two just like wisecracking <laughs> movers just like stumbling onto every single horror movie and just like having to clean up something or move something. It's like you know they show up at Cram Camp Crystal Lake to you know it's fix like, a uh, couple of canoes, get the blood out of the canoes. Yeah. They're down on Elm Street, you know, making sure all the all the mirrors are nice and shiny. This, I, it would just be like a wonderful series of no, just no, Matt no. Bob and the other guy. That's got some promise. I like that. But the mattress scene, yes, the mattress scene is amazing because the, all they're trying to do is get a fucking box spring up the stairs. And it's like, you know, it's a king size, you know, so it's a big it's thing. It's implied that that's the same mattress that Julia and Frank fucked on, right? Oh. Is, that, is that the implication there? Uh, I don't think it's made in the movie, but I, it could be. I mean, if, if it's their mattress and they haven't replaced it after however long, then uh, why not? Um, yeah, because I feel like it's probably this because it's cutting back. Or, I mean, here, you, you just keep going. Okay, yes, yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, so 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 we've got the we've got the mattress that they're trying to schlep up the stairs and they're doing a surprisingly terrible job of it. Three people not able to move this thing up. Uh, it might have been easier with two people actually. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> the third guy was just standing around leaning on it in an uh, unhelpful fashion or something. But uh, so they're trying to schlep this up the stairs, and so there's a lot of like lifting and grunting, and then this is being crosscut with Julia having a flashback to Frank having sex with her on Julia and Larry's just about to be married bed with a wedding dress and all as we discussed earlier and so it's cross-cutting between schlepping the mattress humping on the bed schlepping the mattress humping on the bed and and it just gets more and more frantic and i think this you know it i get the idea of it but i don't think it was supposed to be hilarious but it was it was just so hilarious i i bust up laughing watching it and uh, and the climax of this is 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 Larry cutting his hand on the nail because they can't move the mattress well, and so they only manage to move it like sideways a foot, and then he cuts his hand open and goes upstairs and bleeds all over the attic floor and kickstarts the the horror aspect of the film. Uh, so yeah, it's like yeah, the scene, and it takes like it manages to take long enough that they take a break in the middle to drink. <laughs> Larry goes and gets these two guys four beers. <laughs> While they've still got the mattress on in the same place it's been for like five or ten minutes, uh, Julia comes by and is sort of snarky, and they sort of give her eyes to establish that she's a hottie. Kirsty manages to come by and sneak through the gap between the mattress and the wall, and they're like, eh, and, and one of the guys is like, hey, is that your daughter? She got her mother's looks. And Larry's like, her mother's dead, which is like the only time we hear like any reference the, to the mom. The guy who says this, his face drops because clearly he made a faux pas, but the other one just has a big shit-eating grin on <laughs> his like, face like right after Larry says that. Yeah, good-looking dead lady, huh? 
Yeah, that mattress scene is like I. You could cut. I would like to see a film of the uh, a version of the film cut down to basically just the five minutes that mattress scene takes up, and just make that entire self-contained short film in one act. Because I think it it would really be a thing of its own right. If you watch only five minutes of the film, (laughs) put it in a museum somewhere. Uh, gosh, so, gosh. So what I was going to say is that if it's the same mattress, it kind of makes sense because they're fucking on the mattress, they're moving the mattress, they're fucking on the mattress, they're moving the mattress. Sure, I like that. I, I, I'm going with that. I think that's, I think that's an excellent argument. Uh, I didn't get that from the film, but I, I don't see why not. Uh, if nothing else, it is moving, you know, their bed, which even if it wasn't literally the same mattress, is juxtaposing the idea of bumping around on the mattress versus bumping around on the mattress. So. Uh, this is one other thing about that seduction scene, which is so he, you know, he shows up just in the middle of the day. So she's just wearing like I, I don't think she, she is she a housewife. I think she is. I, I, I guess I don't know. I yeah, no, but the, the, I mean, you know, the, they don't mention any point, but they also we also have no idea what Larry does outside of just <laughs> dick around the house. Well, we know he has uh, a job. We just know nothing about it. Yeah. So. Um, so what happens is so he seduces her, and then you we see them just like in 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 the bedroom you know, about to fuck, and she's wearing a nightgown. So at some point, she must have taken off all of her clothes, put the nightgown on, and then come back to Frank. Yeah, she, 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 she really, she, she went full bore into this whole, let, let's have you coerce sex for me on the eve of my wedding thing. It, oh, you know what? I, I, I have no idea if this is actually supposed to link back into the whole wed, like, really minor wedding theme but the last time the chatter appears he's wearing a veil he is what was that about maybe it was about that yeah because it was like uh because kiss the bride or something because because yeah, because in the book the the like having to like the, the 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 actual seduction starts off because she they're like playing with her veil and he lifts it off and he kisses her so maybe it's like well we we forgot to put that in the previous scene so let's just throw it on one of the cenobites that'll work <laughs> julia wasn't available to come in that day so they just yeah used it elsewhere she did not do any movies after uh, these two. I mean, she did like some stuff, but this is this is her career. The, that actress. Yeah, I know like nobody in this film. Like I, I, I recognize Ashley Lawrence just because Kirsty was in you know both films and then the sixth one, and and I recognize Doug Bradley obviously because Pinhead was in uh, all of them, but uh, except the last, except the last one. Uh, but yeah, nobody else in this film. like none of them. Maybe that was um, maybe this was how they managed to get the complete lack of chemistry. Is that none of these people are actors? <laughs> Could be. Everybody just you know called up a bunch of people. It's like, hey, hey, Fred. So um, you, you're off for Yom Kippur, right? That's <laughs> the first thing I think of. Of all possible things, it's like we 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 just need to come in and shoot a few scenes. Who are you going to be? Guy named Larry. <laughs> <laughs> just run with it. Yeah. Ah, oh, jeez. Uh... There was, uh, there was the pet shop scene. The pet shop scene was amazing. In like, a- so that's okay. So, um, so Kirsty's job is that she works at the pet store, and this pet store apparently has a a very large and very impatient clientele because the one scene we see at the pet store is just like this giant line. It's clearly supposed to show the fact that you know she's she's you know this is her like one of her first jobs. She's having a hard time. The manager's not there. So, but there's a lot of very angry people with alive pets in this pet store. I'm just like, what is it that you need in the pet store that a you brought your pet in here and not the vet? And B, you have to leave there just immediately, so you have to talk to somebody right the fuck now. Yeah. It didn't anyway, make a whole so lot of sense. she, um, so there's this, 
There was a previous scene, uh, that, that, that totally pointless scene of her and Cusack uh, making out where there was like this homeless man kind of stalking them, but not really. He was just skulking. Yeah, like so that the magical the- creepy hobo with the piercing blue eyes. Yeah, yeah, and he, who that actor is? I I think that under the the hobo stuff, that's actually a rather attractive person. <laughs> but anyway, so he shows up at the pet store. Like she finds him over there, and he's got like he's got his fist in the like the crate of uh, I guess those were crickets. Yeah, and he pulls it out, and you know, is covered in crickets. And she's like, "Hey, put those back." It's like, well, I you know, honestly, you should really just be content with maybe him leaving the store. <laughs> And Maybe he, you could spare the dozen crickets just to get this guy out of and there. I, I, I yeah, and, and then after she says that, he, he, he puts them up to his mouth and he eats a handful of them. She's like, <gasps> and then she's like, yeah, get out. And I feel like if you're going to go as far as put that back at the freaky hobo who's in your store, then once he eats a handful, shouldn't you say like, you know, you're going to pay for those? I mean, like commit, commit to confront him inappropriately. <laughs> Seriously. And then he leaves, and there's like this mysterious flapping of wings, and we that there's a payoff for that. Yes, because at the um, end of the film, at the very end of the film, after Kirsty's managed to escape from the Cenobites, she takes the box out to a field. See, this is uh, not clear. I, I kind of see like a, it, it. It's um, yeah. I mean, it, it's it looks a, like just just an abandoned lot where there's inexplicably a bunch of shit on fire. Yeah, there's several distinct, fairly roaring little fires. And one of those, one of the things on fire is the chair from the attic. And I mean, like, okay, yeah, just evil attic, evil chair, sure. But there's like, you know, off in the distance, like every twenty or so feet, there's a bunch of fires. It's like there wasn't that much stuff to burn. So this must be where the town goes to burn their evil things. I guess, yeah, because like it's like I was thinking maybe the house was supposed to burn down, but then they couldn't afford to burn the house down or something. Because uh, like they're sort of they they, they cross cuts the house being all glowy when they've just escaped from it. And we see a shot of the picture of Frank that Julia was handling earlier in the film. And we see that picture burning. So something caught on fire. And then we cut to this field that is clearly not the lot that this house or any house was ever on. And it's got these distinct, very neat little fires. And I don't know if it was supposed to be the house burning down and this is all that was left. Or if it's just the inexplicable field of fires near the overpass in New England or London, maybe. Yeah, it was – and then, okay, so so she throws uh, Le Marchand's box in the fire, and then, you know, all of a sudden there's like the dun-dun-dun, and like the, the homeless guy comes out, and he he looks at them, you know, like he makes direct eye contact, and he just steps into the fire and pulls it out, and then suddenly he's just like in flames, as if he had right before that just soaked himself in gasoline. Yeah, just like showering because- kerosene. Yeah, because, I mean, it's, it's like a little bonfire. Shit does not, like, immediately catch into, like, a flaming inferno. And so it's, apparently it's so hot that it melts him. Like, this is, like, the, the, like the last, like, special effects shop and then of this, um, you know, just, like, homeless man melting. And then from, you know, the skin peels off and there's a skeleton. And then suddenly there's a, um, like, a sc- skeleton dragon. Yeah. There's there's a skeleton dragon and it takes the box and it flies off and it's and, and that's supposed to link you know I, I guess that's supposed to link back to that flapping of wings in the um, that's a good point in the, yeah. in the pet store scene but there was no flesh on those wings so clearly it's not flying by means of that nor is was there anything else to make that noise and, and the flapping of wings sound came from the the shot that doesn't have the hobo in it anymore basically in the pet store uh, is also well, a shot takes- of a bunch of birds in cages so it's like. 
are we supposed to just think those birds were a little unhappy and so they were flapping their wings a little? I don't. It, I, I mean, I thought it was maybe he like leaves the store and then immediately transforms in broad daylight and I flies guess. away loudly. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I feel like there's a real bubble of perception problem uh, with this that maybe we just have to take as part of how the whole Cenobite uh, thing works because Frank was early in the film implicitly sort of being tortured right in his attic for. I don't know, a couple of weeks, long enough for a bunch of food in the kitchen to go terrible and be maggots crawling over everything. Uh, so presumably this has just been happening up in the attic with the screaming and the tearing and the horror and whatnot, but nobody apparently called the police or anything. Like maybe Frank had established himself as a shitty enough neighbor that people just assumed everything was terrible and stopped calling the police. But it's like, that doesn't make sense if if that's magically not audible, then why when Julia is murdering someone upstairs can Kirsty totally hear that something weird is going on when she's standing outside the house? You know, it's like sound. This house has amazingly weird acoustics is the only explanation I can come up with because it's totally inconsistent. At one point early on in the film, uh, when Kirsty first calls Larry from wherever she is, uh, he's talking to Julie upstairs and he's like, what's that? He clearly hears something, but you can hear <laughs> nothing on the soundtrack. And it turns out it's a phone ringing. And she's like, what? And he goes down and he answers it. And he answers the phone. He's like, who is this? Who, is who the this? hell is this? Who the hell is this? And she's like, dad, it's Kirsty. He's like, oh, hey, Kirsty. Like, like he was expecting Everything. it to be a horrible person. But he heard this phone that nobody could hear. Like as a viewer, you literally cannot hear it downstairs. But then later, Julia encounters Frank and she's screaming. And he doesn't even notice. And there's a party going on, but it's not like a – you know, a party with a band. It's just like them having the night of the paper hat, you know, drinks around the dinner table and she's just screaming and, and eagerly or Frank does not notice this apparently, or Larry. And so, Cusack, like Cusack's first line is during that. I think it, the Cusack's first line is during that party where Kirstie's just like, um, she's just like, if I have any, he's pouring her like liquor or something. She's like, if I have any more, you know, I won't be able to stand up. And Cusack's like, well, then lay down. And everybody <laughs>, laughs. And it's just like, well, that was, well, yep. first of all, her dad's right there. Well, it was, it was the night of the paper hat, you know. Oh, yeah. So. Anything goes during the night of the paper hat. Uh, so here's, um, here's one, one thing. Um, so right before she ends up in the hospital, uh, so hang on. How does, I'm trying to remember. Okay, so. She has that fight with Frank, and then she chucks. She's like, "You want this box?" And then she chucks it out the window, and Frank's like, "No!" And I don't know why. Yeah, I think he just didn't want to lose custody of it. But yeah, it seemed like he was really scared about it going away, which is weird because I guess he understands that it's dangerous. But at the same time, I, I don't know. I want to. I want to say about the box actually. So the movie early on, Frank gets tortured and tortured and tortured, and then Pinhead fondles the box and closes it up, and suddenly the attic's super clean. Like, no signs of weeks of hell torture. Uh, and then Frank is somehow a little bit under the floorboards, which I don't know why that was a thing that happened. But but the box, too. Where was the box? Because there was nothing in this attic. It was really easy to see anything there because there was nothing there. But the box, we don't see what Pinhead does with it. And then later, Frank's just got the box after he's sort of come back. So, like, the box, was it just hiding in the closet? Was it in his... Well, pockets. when Pinhead cleaned the attic, he took it with him because he was the one that sent everybody back to hell. Like, that that's the last thing that happens yeah. right before, like, the attic is nice. So that Pinhead picks up the box and he pokes around and then it closes and everything vanishes. So where the fuck did Frank get the box from? They, no idea. And how does See, the guy get it back at the end? 
Yeah, yeah, well, I think the dragon, the, 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 the creepy hobo turns into a dragon and flies it back oh, to him, that's is right. my interpretation. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. So that, that much, I mean, that's, there's nothing weird there. Uh, but yeah, the box just seemed to be in the attic. And, and I don't understand why or why no one saw it before Frank did. And uh, it's all very confusing. I mean, it's so shiny. Every time light hits it, it lights up like a fucking disco ball. Yeah, I know. I mean, the thing is, uh, it's an attractive nuisance, like straight up. <laughs> and later, late, late in the film, so... So uh, when uh, Frank is chasing Kirsty around, when the, the jig is up and she knows it's actually just her dad's skin and not her dad, he's chasing around. He pulls out the switchblade, the good old switchblade. He's all, come to daddy, come to daddy. And he goes to stab her with it. And she dodges and he stabs Julia. And he no. just immediately sticks his finger in his neck to do his sucking out lifeblood thing. Like, he's like, nothing personal. But he just like goes right for it. He's not even like, oh, shoot, are you going to die? He's like, well, you're stabbed. Time to kill you. Uh, and then he leaves her as a green sort of horrible looking corpse sitting on the stairs. But then later, Kirsty bursts into the bedroom, I guess. And Julia's on the bed with a bunch of hooks in her flesh and her face apparently just completely peeled off. But her hands looking actually a nice healthy flesh tone instead of the green that everything on her skin had turned after Frank got her. And she's got the box in her hands. And I don't know how the hell that happened. Maybe one of the centibites was like, hey, Butterball, you... Go go rearrange Julia. Set up this elaborate yeah. scene for us. Oh, well, you know when um when Kirsty first encounters the Cenobites, like she shows up at the attic and there's like the body, her father's you know dead, like desiccated, like flayed body that she still thinks it's Frank. And then the Cenobites appear, and there's just like just an elaborate outline, like a police outline of tea lights around the dead body. It was, it was really nice of the Cenobites to stop by, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond right before <laughs> showing up and just, like, you know, set things up so it just looks nice well, you know, they had, they when Kirsty gets there. They, they had a gift certificate. You know, they, uh, you got to use it sometimes. So, yeah, they just uh, – they, they sent the female Cenobite because, you know, her distinguishing feature was being female. Ergo, you know, she should probably go do the shopping. That's, it's so weird that, like, yeah, it's just like female Cenobite is the canonical name. It's like, let's name everybody else for some salient feature. Although, to be fair, in the original film, the, the, the credits lead just say lead Cenobite for Pinhead, so he doesn't really get a descriptive name. They had a – I'm pulling up the, the IMDb thing because they had – there was a they, – they had a different name. Oh, okay. So this is from uh, the trivia section on IMDb, so, you know, grain of salt possibly. <laughs> Um, so similarly, the female Cenobite was designated Deep Throat on the set, though the overtly sexual nature of the moniker led her to simply be billed as female Cenobite again ah, in the sequel. That, that, that might tie into where I was getting the uh, specific prompting, because I, I remember seeing some mention of that somewhere. And like, yeah, Deep Throat, and then you've got this weird sort of vaguely vaginal looking hole in your throat. So, yeah. You know, know, it's funny, in, in uh, the book, uh, did you get into the book at all? Or? No, no, I haven't yet. I, I might okay, read it so, this week, though. So in the book, this was one of the things that is probably sounds like terrifying on the page, but it would in no way have been anything but hilarious in the movie. Pinhead's voice is supposed to resemble that of an excited young girl. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad they didn't go that way. Yeah, so I, I just, you know, you know when, when you read it's like, oh man, that, that, that's spooky. But then, like, if they were actually to put that in a movie and just be like, um, I'm trying to name an excited young girl from 1987. Molly Ringwald? I, I don't know. <laughs> just like, Molly, we need you to voice this horrible character. All right. <laughs> Give me a couple takes. I want you to say uh, we have such sights to show you. Just, just, uh, but sound like it's prom, you know? I will tear your soul apart. <laughs> um, 
that's it's actually Prince, Princess Peach is what we're going for now. We're going to say <laughs> Mario, uh, furthest dimensions of pain and pleasure. Uh, let's see. I had I had some other. I feel like I feel like we're we're going on two hours here. We should probably wrap this yeah. one up and save some for. Uh, for the just, next episode, uh, uh, but I'm trying to look at yeah. anything particularly witty in my notes that I wanted to get across and did not yet. Um, if you find something first, just just say it yeah, so sure. that the FCC finds us if we have too much dead air. <laughs> well, I, 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 time to play, I remember being a, a catchphrase that I assumed would be in here, but I guess that must not show up until like the second or later films because it's nowhere yeah. in this one. Uh, oh, here's uh, – I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, we, we have such sights to show you. I think it was a classic mm-hmm. one. That totally did get said in here. And I feel like it yeah. gets said again uh, in other films, but I don't know. So I feel like we, we, we should track these a little bit uh, from film to yeah. film as we go. I mean, it's a, Pinhead's got like four or five lines of dialogue in each movie. Yeah, he, at, yeah at it's not most. a big speaking role. Yeah. Oh, so I, I, one thing that I realized that like the whole uh, Julia bringing up bodies to, uh, to, feed, um, to feed Frank... Is it me, or does that, or does this movie resemble Little Shop of Horrors? A little bit, a little bit. Where it's just like, um, it's like, you know, just a little bit of blood at first, and then you know, more and more and more, and then and then he's eating people somehow. Yep. Although, although Frank really doesn't ease in. He's like, I'm a horrible freak. Don't look at me, but look at me and kiss me. But don't look yeah. at me, but but look at me and kiss me. Uh, pretty much right out of the gate. Yeah. So there's not the easing in. It's not like the feed me Seymour. Oh, just give me a little drop. It's more like, uh, Hey, yeah, just go give me a corpse. Go, go, uh, go sex beta dude and bring him back here and murder him. And then I'll eat him. So it's like, there's not the same arc, but still there's that theme there. There was, um, yeah, there was, uh, one of the, one of the guys that she's seducing, like, um, you know, as they're making out, he, he says, just like, he's, she's like, you'll have to excuse me. I got to go empty the old bladder. <laughs> <laughs> it's like no, you're supposed to put a euphemism in there, not like the actual thing that you're doing. It's like you know what they say. I have to go drive to work. <laughs> Excuse me, I need to go drop the poop off at the toilet. Uh, if you know what I mean. Catch my drift. Yeah. <laughs> wow, you know, it was a long night. I really drank a lot of alcohol. Uh, I feel like oh, um, I have a hangover. By um yeah, one of the things uh like by Julia's like third kill, there's this amazing shot of her just like cleaning the blood off her fingernails, and she it just looks like every shot of a disinterested woman filing her nails in like every movie where that's a shot. <laughs> like at this point, she's just like, "Come on, let let's let's let, let's get on with this." I, I th- these guys are really annoying. Yeah, and she they, really gets uh, in the groove. I, I was kind of wondering if there's going to be sort of an out damn spot sort of feel that but it really went the other way she did not become increasingly fraught about what she was doing and she just got pretty casual but she's like yeah let's uh let's uh she puts let's, up a little hook for the hammer so that you yeah. know it's got its own place and she gets she gets into a routine oh um okay so the, the reason i brought up the whole uh the tossing the box and then so julia she's just like walking down the street and there's like this good like two to three minute shot of her just like walking against the fence like dazed and that shot goes on for Maybe about a minute and a half longer than it should, um, and then so then she passes out, and then you know you see like a bunch of like heads like come up after her, like you know I guess her POV oh, yeah. of her passing out, and then there's like this this rose or like some sort of red flower blooming, and then she wakes up in the hospital, and then there's like a really quick shot because the nurse realizes that she wakes up, and you see on the TV the nurse is watching the flower blooming channel. 
Yes, because no, the I, only thing on the TV is just like this other flower blooming on a white background. That's it. Like, there, that, the, that's what she's watching. That hospital scene had a whole collection of like little sort of visually arresting things that were kind of neat, even though they didn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense outside of the fact that they looked neat. And yeah, the fact that Kirsty passes out on the street and then we see this nice full color shot of like a red, I don't know, carnation or something blooming. And, uh, and then, yeah, the nurse is watching it on the TV and, uh, Later in that same sequence in the hospital room, we've got the room going dark and the grout between the bricks of the room starts glowing, calling back to, again, the light coming through darkened walls thing that we saw earlier in the film uh, in the attic. Uh, There's a little bit of blood shooting up into the saline drip. And then in another shot, it's uh, another shot that begs just red and bursting and blood blows all over the walls. A light fixture explodes. You know, there's all these little things in this hospital scene that seemed like, you know, Barker had a bunch of fun ideas. And it sort of works as a weird collage of unsettling, but also it, none of it totally makes any specific literal sense. And the flower blooming seems like the really conspicuous thing there. Because it's like, if this is supposed to be specifically a reference to something, uh, you did not make it clear. If it's supposed to just tie into, like, take it as you will, like the idea of a flower blooming might be the, you know, Blooming of femininity might be a reference to, you know, the blooming of life because we've got crying baby noises in that scene. It might be a notion of just like a metaphor for a, a gushing wound, you know, or blood in general and all these all these things. But like it doesn't touch any of them specifically. It's just sort of there. And uh, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know where he was going with it exactly. But uh. yeah. Oh, um, one other thing is that the the Cenobites and Frank, the, their, their main weakness in like the you know like the weakness of the main villain seems to be that nobody's able to move very quickly. Yeah, they're just real like, cash. Yeah, I mean you know the um, what was it like when Frank like remember the, the the whole scene where like you know uh, Frank finally gets it at the end where he's like about to like attack Kirsty with the Cenobites behind him. I mean he he sort of takes his time like walking up to her. He's like I'm gonna savor this with these dudes behind me who want to kill me right now because <laughs> you tricked me into coming up here. I'm gonna get you, but I'm you know taking my time. And then when she's like. Uh, Christy figures out to send the Cenobites back, you just have to use uh, Le Marchand's box and arrange it, and then basically like a remote. And Well, yeah, and, it's like she used like a gun, like, I'm going to configure this and then shoot you with it, boom. And yeah. it's like, waha. It, it felt a little bit odd, that whole. And then the way she, you know, she does it to Pinhead, and he's standing two feet away from her. He's like, no, don't do that. Instead of <laughs> smacking the box out of her hand, attacking her, sending a couple of hooks. He's just, you know, he's out. He's, he's yeah. out of mana, I guess. Seems, it, seems, like, yeah, it seems like you got a tool set here, buddy. What's going on? Why are you just letting this happen? <laughs> uh, let's see. I think, uh, am I... Am I out of stuff? I had a couple quick notes. Uh, oh. One was I was curious. I was watching the credits at the end and uh, noticed that the Cenobite costume designer was one of the credits. You know, I mean, there was, there was costume as well, but then Cenobite costume designer. Uh, that was Jane Wildgoose, who I looked up, and she seems to be a lady who actually has sort of an interest in the uh, – in general, academically, she sort of is really into – uh, how people deal with human remains, but not in a uh, particularly hellraisery sort of sense. But I think she's just sort of interested in the territory. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I kind of wonder, it seems like maybe she's one of the people primarily responsible for like the classic Cenobite look, which then became to some extent a classic influential horror look in general that other people riffed off. So go Jane Wild Goose for bringing that to the fucking table. Yeah. I think this is like the first time like the villains show up in, like BDSM gear, like straight up BDSM gear in a movie. Yeah, I think it may have been a a really influential film in that sense. 
uh, in sort of bringing that in. People's like, oh, that's an aesthetic we can use, sure. Uh, but also, okay, so Doug Bradley, maybe, maybe this will be our, our, our final little note. Doug Bradley plays Pinhead and does a fine job of playing this character, and he shows up in all of the films except for the ninth one. Uh, the ninth film was so bad that the guy who was willing to star in Hellraisers 1 through 8 uh, d- declined the, the offer. <laughs> and the replacement pinhead is terrible, and it's just that, that's something to talk about uh, a while down the road. But anyway, so Doug Bradley was in almost all of these. And then he wasn't in 9, but he was in The Prophecy Uprising, which was the fourth prophecy film. And I love the prophecy series, but I didn't know there was more than three movies and i you know they're all starring christopher walken all three of them and i love christopher walken and the prophecy films are sort of cheesy and troubling and maybe worth discussing at some point uh but they've also got a lot of charm and 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 i'm I'm fond of them so in the prophecy uprising this is the first prophecy film that walken does not participate in but doug bradley's in it so he makes like the lateral move (laughs) from a terrible hellraiser movie to presumably a terrible prophecy movie uh, replacing uh, Walken as the person that I have to see that terrible movie just because they're in it for. <laughs> so it, it all comes together. It's like a, it's like a, it's a, it's like a cinematic puzzle box. And I, I just summoned uh, the forces of heaven and hell uh, upon myself by, by cracking it there. <laughs> so, uh, so there we go. If you don't hear from me again for the, the next episode, it's because I'm uh, experiencing the further limits of pain and pleasure uh, in the form of IMDb pages, uh, that stretch into eternity, or I don't know how would that how, how would that work? What would uh, what would happen to someone solving this puzzle box exactly? They have to store in the next Hellraiser movie. Oh God, wouldn't that be something? That'd be oh, I, I would love to see a whole. <laughs> they have to pick the spec script of the completely unrelated movie into which they will insert Pinhead. <laughs> I would like to see a series of films where each film, uh, the person who is the un- unfortunate protagonist who bites it at the end or however then stars as themselves in a film that takes a previous film to have been a film that exists in the universe of the new film and they are like the character slash actor in that next one so it keeps getting more meta every film and by the time you're eight or nine films out there's nine distinct sub universes in which terrible films are made starring people in the previous films uh i'll work up a treatment for that i think that'll be a a real winner Eventually, it just turns uh, <laughs> the, the, the film that's made is just Wes Craven's new nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, that was that, that was a couple hours of uh, I feel like yeah. some, uh, pretty good enthusiastic uh, squeeing over the the good <laughs> and bad parts of Hellraiser. So, yep. Uh, um, yeah. So, oh, ne- I, do you want to tell people about some other stuff you're doing? I, I feel like every podcast I listen to ends with just people talking about the other things they're doing. I, yeah, yeah, we, we we could do that. I, I don't know. Uh, I'm uh, not doing I'm not much. Re- yeah, I'm not doing much either. So maybe maybe we'll we'll figure it out for next time. For now, you can uh, catch us on Metafilter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I'll be I'll be deleting your comments from Metafilter, and you know it'll be a good time. Maybe we'll we'll, we'll polish that for the second podcast we'll we'll totally have a plan to sound like professional podcasters who think to uh present themselves as something other than hey i'm josh and oh my god this box thing let's talk about that uh and now a word from our sponsor clive barker <laughs> <laughs> exactly so yeah next time we'll talk about uh we'll talk hellraiser about hellraiser 2. 2 and uh what came over and what didn't from uh, the first film and maybe uh maybe i'll try and give the hellbound heart a proper uh read in the meantime to get a little bit more context and uh and yeah, we'll go from there. 
Yep. Uh, okay. Well, thanks so much for uh, for uh, thinking this terrible idea was a good idea and uh, coming along. Yeah. With thanks it. for having the idea yeah. of a podcast. It would yeah. have never occurred to me. Basically, we're both great. We're, we're yes, pretty we fantastic are. people. So uh, there you go. If you take nothing else from this, listeners, we're great. Uh, so uh, that's uh, that's been uh, we have such films to show you. Episode one, and uh, we'll uh, we'll have See you next time such other films yeah. to show you next time. <laughs> And also, we'll tell your we'll we'll, we'll tell we'll, we'll Jesus Christ! I'm I'm not even sticking. To We're gonna tear your souls apart. That's all I wanted to say. Have a good day. Try not to try not to suffer in an eternity. Of don't fondle any boxes. Yeah. Don't don't touch a box like an iPod. That's that's how they touch it. It's like an old school iPod, and they're turning up and down the volume. <laughs> it was prescient. This is basically a film about Apple. There's your takeaway. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.